Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, and Keanu Reeves. Based on Dracula by Bram Stoker, screenplay by James V. Hart, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to wrap up our Rinfield cast mm. with a look at uh, Francis Ford Coppola's presents uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. Uh, I'm going to throw a little label on this. Is this is Matt? Is this the Gen X Dracula? It is. This is, would be the Gen X Dracula. <laughs> it does feel a little, especially some of the actors in, involved in this thing. Um, Missing Ethan Hawke, and it'd check all the boxes otherwise. Well, I want to. I want to talk a little bit about that. You actually mentioned a name that um, I think could have fit pretty well in this film actually so uh, okay. we'll talk a little bit about that but here we are talking about Coppola again we haven't talked about him since we did our our Godfather trilogy retrospective which was a lot of fun and here um dare I say it this was kind of the the swan song tour for Francis Ford Coppola I kind of think not to let the cat out of the bag or spoiler and I kind of know what came after this which was Jack with Robin Williams and Jennifer Lopez uh this is kind of his you know last big hurrah of like pretty decent returns on his investment, right? Yeah. Um, and he's got that big film coming out. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, uh, later, about Megalopolis, the off-development uh, hell film that he finally got made. Mm. We'll come out next year, and we'll, we'll kind of see what that looks like. But here we are talking about Dracula again with Gary Oldman in the lead role. Did you see this film when it came out in the theaters? Yes, I did, opening weekend with a date. Did it? It's kind of a pretty good date movie, right? Yeah. Uh, did this have a pretty good like marketing, you know, buzz? I mean, I was reading some of like the uh, the reviews, and you know, people were a little bit worried about you know trying to sell Dracula on such a large scale, and they one person labeled it as Bonfire of the Vampires. Oh wow! Before it came out, right? Mm-hmm. But what was kind of the marketing around this thing? You know, you got Keanu Reeves in there, Winona Ryder, kind of at the emergence of their star power, right? Mm-hmm. What did this kind of look like in the early 90s? Huge, like, huge. Yeah. Uh, this was every film, the trailer, at every preview you saw, uh, they hyped this up for a good six months. An October release, I believe, or at least a holiday release. November. Okay, no, okay so a November release. Yeah. So right around the Halloween period, mm-hmm. but definitely hidden into the, the holiday period. Yeah, man, we saw it. Um, it was sold out. I think the showing before was sold out, so we actually went and got ice cream Bought tickets, went and got ice cream and came back because we missed that showing. So we missed the seven and went to the nine. Wow. Um, packed. A lot of hype around it. You put that name. The question back then, surprisingly, when you look at, I think, the scope of their careers, mm-hmm. you know, the names were Oldman, Reeves, and Ryder. Yeah. And the wild card in that, at that time, seemed to be Oldman. Yeah. This was is, his first major kind of like Hollywood role, right? And if you flip that and look at... Where they ended up, mm-hmm. my gosh, the case is quite the opposite in actuality because Keanu is Keanu and Keanu has done what he's done. But I think of Disasterville, Winona Ryder can't not be discussed in, you know, huge missteps, Roxy Carmichael and shoplifting, shoplifting and just <laughs> general Str- batshit crazy that she kind of is. And Stranger Things kind of helped bring her back a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But, but uh, you know, Gary Oldman was the 
who's that guy playing Dracula? Why isn't this? And, you know, so. Who's this thespian playing Dracula? Indeed. Um, no, that's really good. And then you have Anthony Hopkins floating around this thing fresh off of his best actor win from Hannibal Lecter. He's a little hannibal in this film, but we'll, we'll get to him in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but no surprise here. We're having some more of the Basil Hayden's red wine cask finish, straight bourbon whiskey. I think this has been a pretty good one, but mm-hmm. you know what? I think we could probably do a blind test of all the Basil Hayden side by side. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to like all of them. Yes. It's just it's just a really good label. I think their formula and their ingredients make a really drinkable and pal- palatable bourbon. I can't recommend them higher enough. Uh, I don't know if I recommend Jim Beam uh, unless you want something to mix with. Yeah. Maybe a, a, like a single barrel Jim Beam. Yeah. I know. I can't sing the praises higher of this of this particular label. I, it's forty dollar bottle, I bet. Maybe mm-hmm. fifty. This one was fifty because it's a little like on the special side. It's perfect. But just kind of looking back on episode one, mm, Unbreakable. Yeah. We did Basil Hayden's was our first bottle, so I think this is the third because we've done this one. I know we did the rye. We and did dark rye. Our third, right? Well, At no, least. we also did we did uh smoked. Oh, that's right. No, toasted. And then subtle smoke. Five. So we've done five, yeah. And there's at least two more out there that there's one with like a green label. I think that might be like a 10 year mm. or or a 12 year. So we definitely got to dabble in, into that. But hear that Jim Beam and, and Basil Hayden yeah. title sponsorship. Come on. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, let's go ahead and dive right into our flight question. Can't wait to talk about the score to this film. Uh, that particular track right there is called Vampire Hunters. Uh, it's pretty pretty good little tune <laughs> to get you hyped up to go hunt some vamps, right? Yeah. Speaking of Mr. Gary Oldman, I often nickname him El Chameleon because he's able to dive in and disappear into just about any role that's given to him. Uh, and I think he, there's a little bit of method to his style of acting, but I think he can kind of jump in and out of that and not go so far the Daniel Day-Lewis route. But talk about a filmography that is wide, diverse, prestige, comic book, fantasy, uh, a little Tarantino, uh, Luke Basson. Mm. Uh, he's one of my favorite actors. And uh, so I thought we, we hadn't done this. Oh, shockingly, we did not ask this question on Mank and maybe because we didn't want to talk about literally anything when we talked about that film. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed fairly obvious. Your top three favorite Gary Oldman roles slash performances. And I'm jumping into a really great five film run for him. Like in a row? Yep. Okay. From 91 to 94. All right. So two of them won't make it, but I will give you the end capstones with what started and what finished it. What started it was JFK and what finished it was Immortal Beloved. But number three in between is 1993's Drexel, Spivey, and True Romance. This Rastafarian drug dealer, bloodthirsty... Weapons? Drugger? Whatever (laughs) that is. um, Starting to really see some range here. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can go from Dracula to this and... The other iterations that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, at least on my list, you're starting to see that this guy, El Chameleon, as you might call him, is a very apt title. Mm-hmm. Um, 
think about that. Who wants to play Rastafarian arms drug dealer mm-hmm. in this strange Tony Scott film? Yeah. So that's number three for me. It's a Drexel great, Spider. Great choice. It's a small role, but he kind of. I think a couple people still the the spotlight in that film, and he's definitely one of them. Yeah, I'm glad we did that show. Yeah, did that um, film on the show. Yeah, that was that that was a, a really good uh, discussion on that one. Three for you, my friend. Number three for me is a film I revisited recently. The film itself is kind of a disaster, but he is just you can't take his eyes off of him in the film. It's uh, the role of Mason Verger from Hannibal, mm-hmm. an uncredited Gary Oldman in this film. Actually, he's his name isn't anywhere in the credits. Uh, and I wonder if that was his decision or a Ridley Scott decision to say, hey, let's have people just wonder who's behind this gruesome makeup. But his little droll, I'm going to try and do my best impression of it, of, oh, Corvell, why don't you go get the pigs here for Mr. Hannibal Lecter? Mm. <laughs> he's so creepy, and he's just a mess, and he's in this wheelchair, and he's got drool coming out of his mouth, and he's just, he's a despicable pedophile monster, his character, and then after Hannibal's fed his face to the dogs, left him in this ve- very vegetative state, uh, he wants the ultimate revenge on Mr. Lecter. So he's got all these pigs that he wants to feed him to. And he just, you're watching him like, God, what a gruesome, like, who would want to play this character? And of course, Gary Oldman want to dive into this, like, 10 pounds of makeup on top of him, mm-hmm. drive around in a wheelchair and just kind of be creepy. And he's not the real monster of the film. Like, it's it's still Hannibal's show, right? That's really good, Jesse. Yeah. Nice choice. Yeah. Uh, number two for me, a movie that a lot of people didn't see, and I would recommend everybody go back and watch it. That is from 1993 also, the immediate follow-up for him to True Romance, which is Romeo is Bleeding. In that film, he plays Jack Grimaldi. This is a neo-noir. Uh, he and Lena Olin have this very, very mm. complicated romance in it that is bloody and hot and angry and... That film's amazing. Um, that film is absolutely fantastic. Romeo is bleeding. A little bit of a nice role in there for Annabella Shiroa as where as 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 where as well. Yeah, man. A lot of people didn't see that film and they missed out. Go check out Romeo is bleeding. That's my number two. Great choice, Jack Grimaldi, detective. Number two for me. Uh, you knew I was. Have you seen that film? I have one time before, and yeah, kind of. I kind of did a deep dive into Oldman's filmography uh, a few years back, and yeah, very solid, very solid recommendation. Number two for me, I had to go here. Uh, you know, a lot of people have played this particular character, but for whatever reason, his iteration was kind of how I always imagined the character, how I always pictured it, and he got to do it three times, and so I'm picking Detective slash Commissioner James Gordon from. The Dark Knight trilogy. He's kind of the interesting, like, moral compass of all three of those films. He kind of toys the line with the law and breaking it with this pact with this vigilante character known as Batman. Uh, but that, you know, mustache he has with the glasses, you know, he doesn't disappear behind makeup in there, but I think he plays a really int- an important and integral part in that entire trilogy. And you know, all those Batman comics I read growing up or uh, the lack thereof a Jim Gordon in the Tim Burton ones, uh, poor Mr. Pat Hingle. Oh, my God. Uh, he was like the perfect person to, to take on a, a truly iconic role and actually, I think, made people realize how important that character really is to the Batman mythos. So he's my number two. I was certain that was going to be number one mm. for you. 
uh, to take that kind of acting chops and put it in a character that's very beloved to your heart. It must be good for number one because yeah. I know that's a big one for you. Yeah. Number one for me, the third film in that three or that five film run yeah. right after, so from JFK to Bram Stoker's Dracula, today's film, to True Romance, to Romeo's Bleeding, to number one, which is The Professional. Yeah, it's a pretty good run. Yeah, Norman, and then follows up with Immortal Beloved as Beethoven, right? Mm. Norman Stansfield, uh, Gary Oldman, Natalie Portman, Jean Reno. Fantastic villain in that movie. A fantastic film. Yeah. Uh, That'd be a fun cast. Professional, La Femme, Nikita, and... Um, I guess the fifth element if we're going the Luc Besson way. Why not? Sure. Yeah. That would be a fun because I know we have very different takes on that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not on this one. Yeah. Great one. Yep. Norman Stansfield. That's a great movie. It's quiet. It's simple. It's really young. Natalie Portman, who's amazing. Uh, it's her first film role, right? It is. Yeah. Slays Luc Besson at his Bassonist. <laughs> New words today on the show. Excellent choice. Yeah, I, he plays villains so well. He plays, you know, s- uh, slimy and scarmy. Uh, but, you know, in t- terms of today's villain, he can also play sympathetic, romantic, nuanced. And, you know, I think he's really good in that also as Sirius Black in the Harry Potter films. You know, you go into that thinking, oh, God, what an awful person this uncle of his was. And he actually ends up being an integral part into, like, Somewhat of a family that Harry actually still has ties to. Uh, excellent choice. My number one uh, is a film you and I actually went to go see together, I remember. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big, you know, uh, fan of, you know, you know the Oscar Beatty roles of, like, musician performance or, like, political performance. It just seems like that's what they love, right? They love seeing someone disappear into a character, but there's something a little bit different about Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. right? In terms of his mannerisms, I think it's the time period. I think it's the conflict that he's he was like thrust into. And his performance as Churchill in Darkest Hour is pretty remarkable, right? It's disappearing behind makeup, but it's becoming the man, becoming kind of the voice of the British people uh, around the time of the Dunkirk invasion. And... He's really good, and he finally justly, I think, uh, rightfully won his first Oscar after being nominated countless times, right, Yep. Uh, for that performance. Uh, it's a film that, you know, uh, I think the film's fine. I don't know if I need to revisit it, like, fairly frequently, but it is a really good role and performance, and I, I think it's easily one of, his, one of his best. Yeah, that's the one that's most critically acclaimed. Everybody agreed with you. That, And that's a stellar role. There's a bit of lifetime achievement on there as well. Absolutely, we yeah. Uh, great choice, man, mm-hmm. to that one. Do you have an honorable mention or two? Serious Black for sure. Yeah. Uh, I toyed around with uh, uh, The Fifth Element. Because mm-hmm. he's just a scene-chewing villain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, his uh, Here's another one. I think he's really good as Sid Vicious in Sid and Nancy, but yeah. that's an almost unwatchable film. Yeah. It's really bad, and it's kind of not the biopic you think you're watching. No. But he's... Can't deny that he's not really good at the, in that role, right? Mm-hmm. And looks kind of just like him. Yeah. Can I give you one? Yeah. That's George Smiley and Tinker Taylor, mm. Soldier Spy. Nice. Uh, with our boy Mark Strong also playing a pretty significant role in that. Uh, I believe adapted from a Jean Le Carre mm-hmm. novel. Yep. Uh, what's weird about that film is it played well for me in the theater, and then upon revisit, it didn't play as well, but he was better in it. Here's what I'd like to say about Gary Oldman as we head into the show today. Yeah. I think if I was to put him into 
Alzheimer's, he would be on the fringes of that discussion. What Gary Oldman has been able to do over a 25, 30-year run is allow the character to be showcased on screen instead of the character showcasing him on screen. Yeah. See Al Pacino, see Nick Cage, see, oh, Johnny Depp to a certain degree. Oh, good example, yeah. Characters that whatever makeup or persona I take on, I'm them doing vampire. Instead, what Gary Oldman is, I'm actually Churchill, Mm -hmm. or I'm Gary Oldman doing Churchill, not... I'm all of these characters doing Al Pacino, all of these characters doing Nicolas Cage. Yeah. It becomes a parody. You become a parody of yourself. Restraint. Mm-hmm. And which leads into my question that's going to set the T for the show today. And I think this is going to be a really great topic for us going forward. Mm-hmm. We don't let the flight or nightcap or the flight usually be an answer. The answer to the flight be the show we're doing today. Yeah. Would Dracula have made your list of three? In Absolutely. This? He would have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. With that, here we go. Yeah. Perfect segue. Let's go ahead and dive right into our flight quit or our, <laughs> our flight, our review breakdown of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Welcome to my home. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Harkut, to my heart. So we're going to start somewhere where we haven't started with kind of any of these Dracula films and maybe not any that I can recall prior to the, I'm sure there's ones, ones that snuck through there that, that I'm forgetting, but we're actually starting in 1462 with, uh, Vlad Dracula. So this is maybe the first version of this that is going to not only take Stoker's original novel and adapt it more truthfully, but then bring real historical components into the fold, which the novel really doesn't do. So here we are, 1462, with the real Vlad Dracula, I guess, as the film is portraying us in his battle with uh, the Turks, uh, the Ottoman Empire, right? Yeah. And I think this is a fantastic opening. And, uh, you know, Coppola's dive into, you know, this prologue to set up the film. We're going historical. We're going, you know, with the narration from Anthony Hopkins here. I guess he had a free afternoon. He's like, hey, Hopkins, do the narration for the film. And it shows up a couple times throughout the, the movie. But I think this is a pretty fascinating prologue, primarily because we haven't seen this before in Dracula lore. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this this prologue that's going to kind of set up the conflict? And uh, and we're going to talk about religion here too. Uh, yeah, the the armor is truly amazing. Mm. It looks like he's in an armor of muscular design. It, those look like muscles. That's how muscles look if you strip the skin away. Red and, and sinewy and, very, and fibrous. Very devilish. And, okay, so there's a second part. And devilish. So if you take the devil piece of this and then you take the red blood red and then you take the strength and then you take the raw exposed human physical form upon which he feeds then it's sort of genius that Mm -hmm. that's what they chose to put him in 
the battle itself is very interestingly shot. Yeah. Uh, shadows very heavily red backlit with and, a night shot and puppetry and puppetry. Yeah. Uh, interesting opening. And it certainly grabs your attention. Mm-hmm. Gary Oldman is, you know, going to be count Dracula, but at one point we recognize him as this very well-established legendary battlefield war hero. Well, what is he though? He's a crusader for Christ. Yeah. He's, you know, protecting the lands of, of Jesus, you know, everything that's been kind of been bestowed and written about in the Bible. I mean, he's doing it for God. Mm-hmm. And I kind of find it fascinating that his he kind of looks like Jesus a little bit. A little bit. With his long hair and this mustache and goatee that he has. But, yeah, when he puts on this very angular, uh, sleek, mm-hmm. glossy red armor and goes into battle... Uh, it's pretty brutal, and we see the true, you know, Vlad the Impaler. I mean, what does he do? He impales. He's got heads on spikes. He's got bodies on spikes, bodies sliding down spikes. Mm-hmm. And he's a formidable warrior that's killed hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, I I love that. And then we're going to tie this into some sort of Dracula myth. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go, right? Yeah. Uh, and then interesting, you know, we are playing a little bit with kind of a reincarnation myth in this adaptation as well, which I don't think is germane to the Dracula novel. It's kind of more, uh, uh, the mummy. Yeah. Boris Karloff, Anaxanamun, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing my, my past love reincarnated as a new love. Yeah. And so Elizabetha uh, is his wife there. She sees him off to battle. And then I get she receives some fake news through an arrow, right? That says your husband died in battle. And she does <laughs> very brash, right? Just decides to end it right there. Well, what, what can love be without my true love? Kills herself. And because we're dealing with such heavy uh, Christian themes, you know, we got this priest over here played by Anthony Hopkins, so once Oldman comes back, he tell we see this drowned out body, very Ophelia like from Hamlet. Uh well, her soul's damned, right? She killed herself. So there is no afterlife for your love, right? It's pretty tragic. It's kind of sad. And it's just, you know, it's just the times, right? We couldn't send a text that said, Hey, I'm on my way back. You no, know, someone's gonna try and sneak in a, a trick arrow to to kind of one up Vlad Dracula. And he makes a pretty important decision here, right? Renouncing yeah. Christ. Here we get to what's going to be an interesting moment that Coppola is going to see the whole way through. Like He leans into this and he plays it the whole way, and that's the use of blood. So upon the renouncing of Christ, for you have forsaken me, and how could you let this happen to my beloved when all I've done is tried to reclaim every land in your name, stabs the cross after saying you have forsaken me and I renounce you and devil, you know, go to hell, God. And the cross just turns into this fountain, this geyser of blood to which then he grabs a goblet or a chalice and takes himself one real deep pull of this blood with some line around kind of the dialogue premise of blood is the life. Here's my question. Mm -hmm. Is Coppola in this moment letting Christ curse Vlad or is Vlad cursing Vlad into Dracula? Mm. I don't know. I don't either. I think we could go either way, right? Yep. Because it's such a heavy Christian (coughs) theme in this film. I could see it as like, okay, you can't just stab a cross, A, 
And then, you know, maybe this is the Lord's penance of like, well, I'm going to turn you into something really gruesome, right? Or like, yeah. where's my bag of tricks here? And he pulls out the vampire card, right? Yeah. Uh, curses him to damnation. But it could be also him too, yeah, cursing himself with some, yeah, like going against the word of God. I could see it both ways, and I, I like both ways, yeah. right? I, I don't think it changes the, your reading of the film. Uh but it's truly a, like, yeah, the, the second that the, the blood shouldn't be emerging from the vestibule of a cross, right? <laughs> right. Certainly that much. And then the music, it's like chanting and it's very kind of demonic almost. And yeah, he takes from the chalice, I guess he chose poorly mm-hmm. <laughs> and takes a big old swig of this thing and then just kind of screams. And well, I ask you, you know, this is a fairly, vil- this is the, the, the inciting incident. This is the, 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 the main character becoming the villain of the film. Is he really the villain? I can kind of see his perspective of being a little betrayed by, 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 by God. Right? I have fought for you. I have laid my life over you, and you take the one thing that was important for me. What's it all for, then? Right? I can't sit here before you and say that it isn't. If I go back to the one redeemable moment from mm-hmm. Love and Thunder, yeah. it was Gore the God Killer yeah. deciding, "I've had it with you, God. You've let my whole entire." community of people die and my daughter, mm-hmm. all I've done is worship you. Like that's the one part I think we both agreed on being very solid and how Christian Bale becomes Gore the God killer. Yeah. So I can't suddenly just change direction and say, yeah, that's bullshit in this film. No, it's solid. Yeah. Here's the other thing too, that Coppola lays at the feet of, I think what a lot of people assumed was going to be a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, although there might be some horrifying moments, I don't know if I would call this movie a horror film. Um, religion yeah and the role of god in in the expectation of fealty by the mortal and love Love. those are huge Mm -hmm. big themes might i dare say they border or they hint at melodrama a little bit okay so He's going to lay those two down in what's a very important opening, and we have to recognize because this is how Dracula becomes, or Tepes becomes Count Dracula, that since these two big ideas are laid before us, they are going to be the metronome for the film, the marching orders for the film, love and religion. Jesus Christ. This must be a (laughs) seven-hour-long film. Jesus Christ, no pun intended. Oh, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, to that, I guess. God, watch out! There's lightning coming in here any minute. Yeah, there. Yeah, this must be a long thing to get into the weeds with all that stuff, right? And this is a. I mean, prior to this film, mm-hmm. there was the Hammer Dracula, the Christopher Lee Dracula, certainly the Bela Lugosi Dracula. Some iterations, like if you want to go the Hunger, and like some artistic renderings. But yeah. when you use that's more like vampire. When you use the name Dracula, with it comes, I think an expectation of sleep in or sneak in through the window mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, you know, wolf's bane or garlic around the neck penetration. And there's plenty of that in there this movie, is. but we're going in a much, much, much different direction. Yeah. Dare I say, and I liked it. I thought I said it was important. I think I gave it a call plus single barrel rating when we did Dracula, but he's kind of like a one dimensional character to what they're kind of toying around with here yeah. in terms of, Damnation, uh, redemption, uh, long lost loves. 
uh, I think this is some interesting territory. I, I think we, we've gone back to the original text and see what can we play with there and give us a Dracula because, as I discussed, it's either Sherlock Holmes or Dracula that has been played the most on screen, right? How can we do it differently? How can we offer something with a little more pathos? And then I'm tell, I'll am i tell you, there's times in this film, I'm like, you know what? I don't think Dracula's in the wrong here. I know he's vamping people and people are, like, dying of blood diseases, but... He's going after his long lost love, and I can't fault him for that. <laughs> yeah, his uh, his cause is is noble. Yeah, if nothing else, and possibly violent and self serving, but nonetheless, it makes sense. Like I I can't criticize the villain for this, and this is also another interesting point to bring up. If the title of the film is Dracula, yeah. then I believe that this should be a character study into that, and I do believe that this film delivers mostly upon that. Mm -hmm. So if it's his film and his vehicle and he's the main character, then are you making an anti-hero film? Yes, you are. And secondarily, is he going to be interesting enough to carry me through whatever devilish deeds he might perpetuate on the unknowing in order to get over that hurdle that we're trying to cheer him across the finish line for? Those are so. Think about this, Jesse. We're eight minutes into the film, ten minutes into the film. Love, anti-hero, religion, yeah. with a classic, well-received, well-known, popular character in classic fiction. Mm-hmm. Dare I say, Francis Orm, Francis Ford Coppola might have partaken in his most ambitious, singular, yeah film of all time possibly and we can say the godfather and the, the two iterations and that's much more screen time so that would be a fair argument against but well, an apocalypse now yeah i think singular i think the word ambition is something that's followed the man his entire filmography right i mean he doesn't shed away from these big grandiose ideas and i think he's very aptly suited to handle them so now he's he's laid it out before you can he deliver on it yeah, let's okay. So let's kind of get into the to the next little bit here. So it's the Renfield cask, right? So let's talk about Renfield in this movie. So yeah. I think a little bit more true adaptation of the source material, which is Renfield is already in the loony bin, right at the Seward Sanitarium, and has already been captured. But he looks like he's the first real estate agent that went to go meet with him. He comes back all messed up. Uh, and he's just kind of straight-jacketed, and we get a interesting Tom Waits playing Renfield. What do you, what do you think of this? Uh, are you a Tom Waits fan? No, not okay. for me at all. No, it's characters wasted. Uh, there's a lot more they could play with there. It's going to fall to Harker, and I get why uh, at that time, especially get why. Like the Renfield piece that we're familiar with becomes more of the Harker arc in this, kind of. Um, no, I, I, I no, it's an awful performance. I hate Tom Waits. I hate his music. I can barely understand a syllable that he says. Like he's brutal. It's yeah. a fucking terrible decision. I yeah. hate it. And it's different. Yeah. He is, he, he's second, third fiddle beyond Eighth to, fiddle. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, it is. And cause it, it is Harker that does go in, in the, in the text, right? Look, um, man, if you're behind Carrie Elways in the casting department, they haven't given that character a whole lot of consideration. Yeah. I mean, he's, I think just meant to go like, like, this guy came back messed up. I mean, he is the kind of driving force of getting Harker go there. Like, your predecessor went, failed. If you can seal the deal and get this guy to sign on the, the dotted line for all these properties, you'll be set up pretty nicely at this firm going forward, mm-hmm. which for Harker, that makes a lot of sense. And for Renfield, uh, uh, the Todd Browning version, 
that makes sense as well. Like I want to go mistake my claim in uh, my profession. And for uh, Jonathan Harker, he's like, well, I can stake my claim and then I can set up nicely for this woman that I want to marry, right? That's played really well too because when we see Mina corresponding with Harker and then the following bit of dialogue that meets, you know, our first meeting with Lucy, Mm -hmm. she does tend to lean into his struggle with average. He wants to be something better than what he's perceived. <laughs> Boy, as. are we talking about an average character, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and she's also wondering about what his perceptions of her are as a schoolmistress, a teacher, essentially. So we have toiling, middling, as you might say, real estate agent in 1859. Dear God, Bore City. Bore City and Schoolmistress and 1897, Bore City. Snoozeville. And boy, are these people sexually repressed, man. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Greeting Arabian Nights on the side as she's writing this letter. We'll get to that. Uh, it's it's wild. Oh, this is appalling. Let me look on the next page. So, okay, what do we want to... Okay, let's get on the... Let's get to Castle Dracula, and then I want to talk... Let's talk about Keanu first. All right. One of my favorite moments in this entire film. So they they start making out in the garden, right? And he's like, I, I will return, Mina. <laughs> and then this peacock feather kind of like flitters into the frame and then that becomes the train tunnel into a miniature train down into the Carpathian mountains. I got to talk about the effects of this film because Coppola's insistence was for any type of like visual and stuff. Like I want to try and do it as realistic as possible. Like maybe however they would have done it in the early days of cinema. Uh, And so he met with some VFX people and they're like, no, we'll just do it in the ILM, right? We'll do it in the computer and so he fired all those guys. Mm-hmm. He hired his son to kind of be be in charge to lead the VFX department. I want to mention a couple of just kind of things that they did here and, and that they're highlighted in this train sequence. Uh, so you know how, you know, there's a shot there of like the journal and he's reading the journal and then the train's like writing on top of it. All the effects that were done for the film were done in camera. So they did them like for real in real time. Great. In order to do the the visual to have the foreground and the background in focus at the same time, they made a twenty, like like a ten foot to scale book mm-hmm. that would be propped up like far in front of the camera, and then they had like the train model and then the the rear projection background go on top of it. But it looks like you're just reading a normal size book there. But the thing's like ten feet long. Wow. So force perspective, right? And then they did something. So when he's in the carriage, that's like a stationary little set that's kind of they're rocking back and forth. And then they had filmed ahead of time uh, three different moving components. So one was like trees. The other behind that was rocks. And then the other behind that was the sky. And they're all moving at three different speeds based on time perspective, right? Mm-hmm. They filmed all that at the at first. And then they rear projected that against Keanu in his scene and then they floated in the eyes, you know, because how Dracula's eyes come in, all in camera, in real time. So there's nothing you have to do in a computer or on a green screen after that. They they use none of that kind of stuff. Pretty inventive material here or in, in terms of VFX magic. So I want to ask you a question. That's I didn't know that. That's quite a breakdown. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of pre-production and, and background, if you will, aesthetic. With that much effort put into what amounts to an important carriage ride to mm-hmm. Dracula's castle through the Carpathian Mountains and all annals of, of Dracula, it's important. But 
probably not as important as what happens inside mm-hmm. the castle. And that's, that plays really well too visually. Yeah. Are we starting to get a little bit lost in the minutia? This is very odd to say it this way, but mm-hmm. for me, the minutia of the grandiose in this film, I don't think so. Uh, I, I kind of like getting lost in this. It's a very gothic film to scale. Do I, can we call this an epic vampire tale? Because, yeah. you know, the sets, the costumes, everything's big, right? Mm. Uh, what I think all these interesting visuals and uh, juxtap- like uh, superimpositions and cats, or not cats, but rats running upside down, I think it's feeding into the uncanny supernatural world that we're living in that like things aren't quite what they, what they seem like. If you want to show me visually show, don't tell right Mm -hmm. that we're in not the real world. I think these are great tools to do that. And we get another one here when uh, the carriage rider picks up Keanu by like the shoulder and kind of like glides him into the, the carriage. I'm here for all of this stuff. I think, I think this looks good. I think it's, it's unexplainable, right? It is like magic in a way. And I think it just helps build the world. I think if we're world building the world, the Bram Stoker's Dracula, these little tricks and tools, they're doing it for me. And then when the costumes come in, holy shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Dracula's cape train. Yeah. <laughs> it's longer than the floor in his foyer. It's big and yeah. it's colorful and it's grand. Uh, so we've already talked about the big themes that were laid about before us in the opening 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now we're adding to it this rather, like you said, supernatural element that allows you to play a little fast and loose with physics, for lack of a better term, other things than that, but physics. Dracula is becoming bigger and bigger by the moment. And the question then for me, and I don't know if I have an answer for this even by the time we get to the show. I've been puzzling over this for a couple days now. Mm -hmm. As talented as Gary Oldman is, and no one's going to argue, at least no one in this room is going to argue with his ability to act. Is he big enough to be able to play it low enough that you don't get lost into the lack of gravity Spider-Verse effect that I can't, that I, that I hate? Yeah. I don't think so, but we'll see. There are moments where I'm like, yeah, I don't, that's bullshit. I don't believe that could happen. Like that's too far. That's, that's, that's a bridge too far. Mm Mm-hmm. Not yet. This guy's been around for 500 years. Mm-hmm. If you're going to survive 500 years, there is a level of supernatural immortality, among other things, that you have to address. Mm-hmm. So it's consistent. I'll say that it's consistent. Yeah. And we're, I think we're also trying to set ourselves apart up from dozens of versions of this character, right? How can we make this version like, oh, 1992, I'm going to go see another Dracula film. What's going to be different about it? Like, there's got to be something that grabs my attention that makes it look a little bit different than anything I've ever seen before in in this world. Uh, What what I really like, you know, he's reading the letter and when the eyes come in and he's he's like, my friend, I look forward to meeting you, your friend, D. D. I kind of dig it. And Francis Ford Coppola at one point wanted to call the movie D. Can you imagine? No, like, thank God that didn't happen. Uh, Columbia was probably like, ah, no one's going to know what that movie's about. Like, you got to call it Dracula. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but to Coppola's credit, I mean, he thought about it for a second. But uh, once we get into the, the castle Dracula and we got the, like, the blue flames and we got this weird carriage driver, 
man, we're in a weird world here. I mean, if I'm Harker, I don't know if I'm getting in the carriage. I'm probably jumping out. Mm-hmm. And I think we've said that a couple times in this cast, right? Yeah. He gets in there and this old widow uh, cape, widow's peak hair thing guy comes out and, dude, he looks like death. Yeah. And Keanu, I mean, to his credit, I mean, is just like, yeah, I, I'll see this through to the end because, you know, I want to marry my girl. Mm-hmm. Steps through that threshold and, man, he has just kind of signed his own death warrant, right? A really important moment because the movie doesn't allude to this, but in vampire fiction, vampire law, the vampire can't enter the house unless you invite them in. Mm-hmm. So they reverse that a little bit here. And we go tight, tight on the threshold to Dracula's castle mm-hmm. with a rising bit of music. And then this large crescendo as Harker steps into the castle. Almost like, well, he stepped over the line and there's no going back now. There you go. The and story I, begins now. And I like that because that's fairly consistent with... Now, they're going to break a major rule here in a, in a little while later that we'll talk about too when it comes to vampire law. Daylight? What the fuck? Yeah, Ser- whatever. We'll get to, yes. Well, with some caveats, right? You okay, know. weaker version, but yeah. yeah. It, it, I like this. Mm-hmm. And you can feel it when you walk in and it's like, oh God, oh no, what did you do? Mm-hmm. What have you done? All the well what's co- accompany this and the, the Dracula with this crazy craggly lantern, right? His shadow is doing like a whole nother dance in the background, Very right? Cool. Oh, I, I love, and again, another in camera, like another guy with the costume doing like a different thing there. And they have some fun with that, like where he's like kind of choking him out in the background when they're looking over Mina's picture. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Keanu, Matt. We got to discuss the elephant in the room. You know, we love the guy. I yeah. mean, his lore just keeps growing by his generosity, his benefactorness, uh, just an all around great guy. 1992 Keanu, I mean, Hollywood heartthrob, Point Break Keanu, uh, Bill and Ted Keanu. I know why they wanted because they they wanted to put him in this because you know they wanted some names right. They wanted some like heartthrobs. Got to be real. I think this is a huge miscasting, and it's not Keanu's fault. I just don't think this is a lane that he works well in. No, because it should have been Nick Cage. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It should have been at that time. It should have, this should have been Nick Cage. This is where I bring up Ethan Hawke, and I think okay. Ethan Hawke might have been a good Jonathan Harker. And then to kind of double down on that with Winona a little bit later, I think she's also a little bit miscast. We'll talk about how she's even involved in this project in the first place. Can you imagine? I, uh, here's my dream casting. Jennifer Connelly and Ethan Hawke. So sweet. <laughs> Mina and Jonathan Harker. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting, but um, I don't think the performance is bad by Keanu. It's the accent. Is He's trying to do this like... 1800s London accent, and it's just like I just hear like via condios. Mm-hmm. It's it's impossible not to, right? And he comes across as very wooden. But we said that about the first guy, right? So that's the problem with Harker. And so here's my I guess other unanswered question about this film. When you take Anthony Hopkins, who is just off the rails at moments in this film, and We'll get to some of his nonsense later. Dude, so Loomis. Yeah, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Well said. And every time he sets himself or is put into a scene, I feel like he's trying to upstage everybody else in the scene. And then you get Gold- Oldman not necessarily doing that, but by the nature of who the character is. Larger than life. Naturally doing that anyway. Yeah. It comes across for Mina and Harker specifically as... 
so wooden, they're inconsequentially laughable. Yeah. And I think Keanu is is miscast. <coughs> Maybe Ethan Hawke is able to bring a little bit more um, energy to that. The, but the, the problem is, though, other than getting vamped by Monica Bellucci and her one and two and a half other sisters, oh, the other man. half of her being connected to her. Great scene. <laughs> my favorite scene in the movie, just because, and not even because that, just that is amazing, like how they come out of the sheets, and we'll get to that. Yeah. And his like repressed, finally releasing this hard on that I've had for my, you know, fiance for four years, yeah. Mina. He's just very dry. Yeah. And we said that about the first JH, right? Yeah. It's just like the, the character doesn't have like nearly anything to do. His job's boring. His quest is, other than going and being kind of the crux that gets Dracula to the homeland, his quest is boring. Uh, like, him and Mina are boring together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I just, yeah, I think you're right. It's not Keanu's fault. I think it's just the character is just so wooden and stilted. And you said stiff with the original. I think that applies here today as well. Christian Slater was offered and he turned down. Uh, that might have been a little bit better of a chance, too. Um and yeah, go listen to any of our other Keanu films. We just talk, sing praises about it, what, a, what a, kind of a fantastic actor he is when he's in the right role, right? right. Uh, the roles that fit him. And I say the same about Winona, too. I mean, uh, we, we also did Heather's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a long time ago. She's great in that film. Yep. And uh, take that and, like, Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. And, like, she fits in a certain lane as well. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's aristocratic London school teacher. Dark comedy. Which Dude. is kind of Stranger Things too, a little bit. Yeah. I wouldn't say, but she's kind of comedic in that. Give me Jennifer Connelly. She'll sl- especially like early '90s Jennifer Connelly. I mean, uh, this is a gr- good role for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me read you about this. You know, like I told you, like let's expand the lore of Mister Reeves a little bit more. So this is coming from the words of Coppola himself. We tried to get a matinee idol for Harker because it isn't a great part. Coppola's admitting that the part's not a good one. <laughs> Uh, hmm. And then he's he's addressing the criticisms about people, kind of saying the performance is bad, the accent is terrible. And Coppola says, I wasn't as critical of him because I like him personally just so much. Uh, to this day, he's a prince in my eyes. Mm. Think about that. Francis Ford Coppola, who has gone toe-to-toe with the likes of Marlon Brando, Brando. Robert De Niro, uh, you know, Gary Oldman. I got a clip for you here in a little bit that's amazing. And we'll go toe-to-toe and saying, this isn't what I want. You're not giving me what I want for this role and for this character. But for Keanu, he's like, "Ah, I didn't push him as hard just because, like, I kind of like the guy. And, like, I didn't really need to go there with him for that character. Mm -hmm. Kind of amazing, right? Yeah. (laughs) kind of Speaks to how solid an individual he is. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to something else. And maybe Coppola continued in what's off page that you didn't read, or maybe this is in his mind. Yeah. If you can present Harker as this stiff, milk toast, yeah, I just said, just get the smile out of you. My favorite line, yeah. Uninteresting, pathetically climbing, mediocre fellow that's almost hampered by his strict attention to manners. Mm-hmm. Juxtapose against Dracula, who is that beautiful gray suit and daylight that long flowing hair this balkan gothic sort of appearance the glasses the wanting to do something crazy like go to a movie with mina and actually maybe 
putting your arm around her waist as you walk through the town together instead of, you know, jumping in front of every puddle. And that's the closest you're going to come to touching her because you wouldn't want her, her petticoat to get dirty. Yeah. Harker style. Yeah. It plays well because mm-hmm. I get it. Although I think Mina's almost maybe a little too eager to jump into the sack with, with Vlad. I get it. Yeah. He's, he brings a whole lot more energy to the table than toy soldier Harker. Yeah, that's what we're playing with here. And I know that's what the material gives us is Harker is just stiff, stilted, yeah. boring. Yeah. But then when I meet Dracula, like this guy. Vibrant. Is, energy. I want to go with this guy. Look at him. He's hairy. He's I can, all these things. He's hairy. I can buy it. I can buy it. Me see, too. And it's not even just the vampire trance. It's just like this guy's more interesting than my current guy. Mm-hmm. Hell, the other three men floating around the estate are more interesting than Jonathan Harker. Even morphine-addicted Seward. Let's talk about that real quick, and then we'll get to to the scene you prefaced earlier, which is the vamp orgy room. Okay. Uh, Okay, so in this film as well, you know, we have kind of a more traditional Dr. Seward who's a meth... uh, Drug addict. Morphine addict. uh, What? Crazy doctor uh, who um, kind of floats around this estate, and then it's right next to Carfax Abbey, right? And then you have... Quincy. Quincy, uh, Billy Campbell, right? The Texan, mm-hmm. which I think uh, Bram Stoker, I think he visited Texas and was just so enamored by like the people there. He's like, Dude, I got I to gotta, I gotta put like a Texan character. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know what his play is on that. And then you have, yeah, Carrie Elways as Arthur Holmwood, who's Lucy's suitor. Mm-hmm. So you have all these men kind of buying and like... Lucy is able to play off of them all so well. Oh, show me your big, your big, it's so big, your, your, this Bowie knife that the, the Texan Quincy has. And uh, Aquafina's name was Quincy last week, right? Yeah. Sadie Frost is Lucy. It, this is just such a much better character. I can see why people would want to play this character. Mm-hmm. It's more loose and free and yeah. seductive and fun. And I know very little about her filmography, She's incredible in this film. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I would get under the, the vampire trance of Sadie Frost, I'll tell you that. Sure. Uh, what do you think of that, too? And you can kind of see how they're playing up Mina's just, like, jealousy of, like, her repression, right? Yeah. Because Lucy's been experimenting, and yet the, 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 the discussion of the Arabian... Is that even possible to do that, How right? can a man and a woman even get in a position like that? Yeah. I don't know, but I did it last night in my dreams. Yeah. yeah. She's very worldly in the ways of... Uh, love Mm -hmm. and i think is sort of might i dare say bullyish to mina about it like you need to get on your knees once in a while girl otherwise they're not going to work anymore Mm -hmm. um and then of course mina's very tepid response that is don't you speak about my dear jonathan that way well then she's so buttoned up too i mean mina literally like, no no her clothes are even buttoned up jesse to, to the neck right? to the neck yes this halter like choker and then this the the petticoat right yeah and then lucy's just like here let it, it flow is. here it is let guys. it flow man right? mm-hmm. uh i've always been fascinated by these two characters yeah. and uh the the what you call you know 1931 dracula is a little bit limited by how far we're willing to push the envelope here though, like we can really go there with with this, yeah. and then flitting around in the in the rain and kissing each other. Okay, <laughs> we, I, I want to talk specifically about that. Um, we got to do the vamp scene first, but I, we have we have to talk about that whole how wet it is. Zoo fucking kissing in the garden. Yeah. That whole like we have to talk about that. Okay. But let's do the vamp scene okay. first. 
Okay, so first he's uh, Harker sold him the real estate. He's like, here, here's this. They're they're having dinner together. It's weird. It's strange. Yeah, yeah. Dracula's pale as the pale moonlight. Crazy hair. Like, did you did you look at the back of his neck? How his skin yes connected to his hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Good makeup. Academy Great. Award winning makeup effects. Sure. Uh, and then he sees this picture of Mina, and then he's like, oh my god. And she's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's Elizabeth. And so. <laughs> Now we know his play, right? It's just like reincarnation, found my long lost love. I got to get out of this place sooner rather than later. Um, so we need to start that process now. I got to get this guy out of the picture. So let me sick my wives on him in a very beautiful, scary, sensual scene. Dude, Harker's on like these silk sheets, silk waterbed. Yeah. And Monica Bellucci comes up from like between his legs. Yeah. And she's all vamped out. And then the two other ones come in. And this scene is just like, oh, my God. You're like, as as a, as a man, you're just like, oh, my God, this is like such a great scene. And then they show the teeth. And you're like, ah, oh, maybe I don't want this so much, right. right? Yeah. Now I'm getting bit and vamped and put under a trance. And then Dracula comes in. And then he's furious and, like, gets them to scurry away. And I'll never forget, like. Bellucci like kind of assimilates with the, with the other one. Mm-hmm. They do a weird little spider rock out of the scene. Mm-hmm. Very, oh, very oh, thing like, very thing like. Aren't we good to have anything to feast on tonight? Ugh. And this is from the book. Oh, here's a child I brought from the village. Drops down a baby. Holy God! Right, mm-hmm. ghoulish. And dude, all the only thing Harker can do. Actually, I think I have some sound from it. <laughs> Are we to have nothing to feast on tonight? emotion from Harker finally <laughs> I mean you would have to respond to whatever it is is happening there but to your argument about this not being a horror film uh yeah this now is, it is this is kind of horrifying very horrifying uh yeah Dracula ghoulishly laughing and yeah the, you Coppola man he's like hey, we're doing Dracula we're gonna put this scene in here and we're bringing this baby in here I'm like oh my god well now the anti-hero argument's gone out the window yeah that's you cross that threshold mm-hmm of sacrificing infant, then two things happen and you hate his wives. Yeah. How could you not? Yeah. And his little ghoulish laugh pre mid post feast mm-hmm. lets you know, not only is this guy not to be trifled with, but Bad. yeah, man, Dracula sucks. Bad dude. Yeah. He sucks. The years have caught, uh, caught up to him. Yeah. Right. He's into some very nefarious activities here. Mm-hmm. This is how he feeds his his women, right? So we talked about, and you talked about, 
the lengths that Coppola and his son went through to build the effects of the Carpathian Mountains with the carriage right through there. I think you see them again here. A couple things are really important that happen. Number one is these women seem to be invisible when necessary, which that's terrifying to me. If I can't see you sneaking up on me, I have no shot, right? Because I couldn't see you. Yeah. Secondarily, they're so devilish as we come to find out later as the movie moves on. They don't even want to finish him off. They're just going to slowly bleed him so they can continue to feast. They look like they look, which is breathtakingly, even in their vampish state prior to the exposure of the fangs. Yeah. They're gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them looks like Medusa. Yeah. Like very Medusa Mm -hmm. hair, right? Look, Harker's got no chance of handling one of them, much less three of them. But even if he wanted to get away, I don't think Why he would can. You? <laughs> right. And you get that great scene. So as they become the tapestry of the sheets and the footprints on the sheets and weave in and out and appear and disappear and are nowhere to be found to and suddenly surrounding you entirely, the mirror on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Dracula's that kind of a guy. He's got the mirror on the <laughs> ceiling, and that's great because he's pinned down, crucified state. Yeah, and it's just him. <laughs> and it's just him, and yeah. he can't, and he's enjoying every bit of it. Yeah. You start to see his clothes come apart, and he's lost in this rather orgasmic moment. And then we go back to the bed. And so now you're also playing on the rules of the vampire has no reflection. We got a little bit of that earlier with the the shaving scene between the two of them, between mm-hmm. Count and, and uh, Harker. So Coppola is at least still adhering to the mythos that you and I think is important in this particular legend. Yeah. Of all the monsters we've talked about, from mm-hmm. the boogeyman to werewolves, the most tried and true mm-hmm. set of nomenclature or stichiometry for defeating the vampire revolves around these six to eight rules, depending upon. Mm-hmm. And I like that we have the threshold acknowledgement where you have to be invited in. Yeah. I like that there's the no reflection. I like that there's this really well-explained reason why the cross is such a terrifying yeah. and ugly thing for Dracula. Mm-hmm. The why blood is what's sustained, how he sustains life. Yeah. All of that stuff plays really, really well. Yeah. And it's weaved in, I think, I don't want to say effortlessly, a lot of effort was put into it, mm-hmm. but pretty seamlessly into a lineage. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And then his kind of transformation methods as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gets to play old Dracula, young, hot Dracula with the top hat. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> Uh, Bat Dracula, Rat Dracula, Green Mist Dracula. Werewolf uh, Dracula. uh, Dracula and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat Dracula. Uh, He gets to play, yeah, Werewolf Dracula. With Lucy, right? That's all. Oh my God. What's that that scene? That scene, dude. Yeah, Dracula knows what positions to put you in. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Werewolf, Manwolf Dracula. (laughs) What? Pretty cool. I mean, I mean, Bella gets to play regular Dracula and a... And mist a, and a bat and oh mist but yeah. you don't see it there's that bat again <laughs> watch out it's gonna get in your hair yeah he's getting you're getting to like just <laughs> the, the, the full transfer whatever curse christ gave him that makes him transform into these ghoulish things i mean he's able to do it mm-hmm. 
But, okay, so the stage has been set. He has his property. He's coming. He's got his boxes of earth, uh, and he's got his gown on, and he gets on the uh, Demeter, and here we go, right? And so here he comes, but he's kind of already kind of like psychologically kind of staked his claim over in London because we get to the scene you're talking about, which is he yeah. makes it start raining, and then these two, like in some weird trance, they just start making out. They're like wet-headed. There's like a wet T-shirt contest in the garden here, and he's coming. Right, and he's slaying on the boat, and then he's gonna come slay when he comes and and lands here. And the music in this scene is amazing. I got a little bit of it. Well, I'll play it. I'll play a little bit of it later. Uh, I know you want to talk about this. I want to mention one detail that I don't think we've ever seen before. In his Earth box, he's like in some weird amniotic sack yeah. cocoon. <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. I don't know if that's like regenerating mm-hmm. his like life force. Um, but he comes out, he slays all these people on board this ship. Yeah. And then when he arrives, I mean, he turns into wolf and he knows exactly where his prey is, right? He knows exactly where, what, where he's going to go first. But what do you think of all this Dracula's arrival to London? I love the amniotic sack bit, Mm -hmm. this cocoon that he's in that is giving him a much more intriguing visage, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Comes out a lot more healthy, not the decrepit old thing we saw at Count Dracula's castle. Mm -hmm. As far as the rain bit goes, I don't even mind that he's got this power over these women, I suppose. It is just getting to be, and I brought this word up earlier, and this is where I struggle in some parts with this film, so melodramatic. I'm not sure I'm not watching Splendor in the Grass. (laughs) Uh, Does he really have the power to make it rain from across the globe? And does he really have the power in this rainstorm to make Lucy and Mina want to start making out? I get the role of sexuality with the vampire. Like Mm -hmm. I fully get it. Yeah. But this is almost contrived by Coppola for me to just sort of stir the pot with, and look, I'm, I mean, I don't want to be offensive to anybody on this, but, um, you know, I don't mind a little sex in the film here and there. Like, I don't mind that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's why we've done so many Paul Verhoeven films, but, um, or talked about him so much, I suppose. Yeah. This is just, this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just, this is stupid. It's silly. Like, I'm rolling my eyes. Like, are you kidding me? No way would Mina do this. If you want to do that, then mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. Get him there. Yeah. And after they have this afternoon rendezvous, it's just, and so then we get to the part that I can't understand. And I watched this two, two or three times, mm-hmm. the zoo part. Okay. With the wolf that's in the cage where the bar bends and then the wolf comes out mm-hmm. and he's the wolf in the zoo. Mm-hmm. What? How, wait, what? Yeah. I, I don't get that at all mm-hmm. because wasn't he just transported via his earth box to Carfax Abbey. And now he's in this, that whole bit is just a murky disaster. That 20 minutes is just murk. You know, it's very, it's very dreamy. It's very, you know, yeah, I love the camera in this scene too. Cause when they're, the, they're in the garden and the camera's like on like a pendulum. It's like, dude, it's doing, it's doing crazy. It actually might be. It's doing nutty stuff. And dude, Renfield's like, master, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> and you know, Dracula comes and then he's man wolf. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Lucy, I don't know if this is what Lucy sleeps in, but if she does, amen to her. Uh, this like red, <laughs> this red lace, whatever, that's covering up nothing. Yeah. And dude, Dracula comes and then like, here's something we've never seen in any version of this, dude. He's just like, they're like, they're doing it on this like slab. And dude, like he's got like his like 
arm like under her back and he's like like ample support right and then he sees mina come down don't see me and he looks like he looks like ghoulish right of course don't this can't be the first time you see me uh uncanny uncanny valley uh just we're doing some monstrous things we're seeing dracula take many forms seducing from afar seducing in person uh but we're getting things going here we're getting we're getting we're checking the boxes of you know because Lucy has to get vamped, she has to start the process of dying yeah. uh, and vamping, and then we got to start this courting process with Mina. And I kind of like that they both happen concurrently mm-hmm. in this version, where which is in you know the original. We follow Lucy, she dies, it's a mystery, and then Mina shows up, and it's very tepid. But we're kind of doing both at the same time here. Uh, I'm okay with the pacing. I kind of, uh, yeah, it's hard to explain the wolf bit. And then, yeah, is he storm and controlling the weather? But uh, <laughs> I, I love the visuals. I love this this ship in the hurricane and the blood hitting the, the sails and him coming out of this sack. It's just, it, a lot of that works for me. And the, the music too. And I'll, I'm going to play that later. But cool. um, I guess I, I just need the scene where, even if the ship is at harbor, if the Demeter has docked, and we get the harbor master with the constable mm-hmm. going through, looking at just the vast wreckage and carnage upon it, and then we get to zoo, mm-hmm. and at the zoo there is this unexplained white wolf that's in the cage, and not to get too thingy because I don't want it to be the thing, and mm-hmm. so I'm not going that way, but. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of people that are just there at the zoo watching and then we stay and maybe we do something else and then we get to a night shot where we see that wolf escape the cage. There, It gives it a time lapse that I feel like is desperately yeah. needed. And here and again, this is a long movie, so we don't want to spend too much time in this, but this is no more than five minutes and five more minutes at this point isn't going to break or make this film. Actually, yeah. I'm making the case for it, maybe not making it, so yeah. breaking it. Um, yeah. You need an in-between. I Yeah. Yeah, and again, if the eyes of Dracula are in the clouds as Harker is traveling up the Borgo Pass, then there is an omniscient element to Dracula. I really don't think his eyes are in the cloud. He's just his all-seeing, all-knowing. So he's omniscient. Okay, I even buy that to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But does this omniscience have the ability then to will people into his bidding? Well, that is something that the vampire has shown to some degree. Yeah. It's getting to the point, though, Jesse, where if he's that omniscient and that powerful, we're fighting an impossible foe. Oh, yeah. And I'm not even arguing with that. Okay, give me a, a nice, sturdy challenge. Yeah. It's something... This is what I was telling my wife yesterday, too. Something in this film occasionally really doesn't click. Like I can't quite put my finger on what the miss is and maybe that it's just too mystic or maybe that it's, you know, I'm too rooted in Todd Browning's Dracula, but we didn't exactly give that the highest marks last week either. Yeah, There's something off in that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is. Restraint. Does there need to be a touch of restraint? Melodrama keeps coming to mind for me at certain points, but it's not throughout the entire film. Watching them make out in the, 
rose labyrinth garden with the heavy rain. Okay, I guess. I wouldn't say that's melodramatic. It's, I don't know what it is, Jesse. There's something off about that. It's okay. not even off-putting. Like, I don't, it's fine. Like, they're kissing, whatever, who cares? <laughs> um, I don't know. Some, there's something off there. I, I, I can't figure it out. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get into yeah a few more kind of just interesting facets of the film. I'll say there's like th- that whole storm bit, and then yeah, in the soundtrack, the title of that is called the storm. Oh, yeah. I lo- I love all that. It, it it plays for me pretty well. It feeds into the uncanny valley of this entire movie of just man, weird things are happening, and like we can't explain them. Like yeah, you can't can't explain what how a vampire exists to begin with. Oh no, at, sure. at all. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I think that's why it works a, a lot for me. And I like that I'm seeing new things that I haven't seen in Dracula films before. I mean, even in the Christopher Lee one, and that might actually be my favorite iteration of Dracula, which is Horror of Dracula, him, Michael Goff. Uh, Peter Cushing, I really like that film. That might be my favorite uh, Dracula film. But even in that one, I mean, we're just kind of, it's pretty basic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we're, we're like really stepping outside of like familiarity with with this. And I think Kenneth Branagh is going to do that with his Frankenstein film a couple years after that is like stepping out of the lines of the story you think you know, right? That way we're keeping it a little fresh, a little less repetitive, right? I've never seen Dracula turn into man-wolf and... no. Bed Lucy in the garden on a slab. <laughs> I mean, I'll take that. I'll take it. Now let's get to Daylight Dracula in his uh, gray suit with his blue shades. Dude, blue shades. That's so 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his courting of Mina. And I kind of like that it's a little predatory at first. It's a little stalkery. Uh, she's like, get away from me, you weird creep. Jesus looking creep. Um, and he really wants to go see the movies. He wants to see the moving pitches. And they go, and I, I I forgot this about the film that he tries to vampire right here, right here in the in the tent, and he, a little bit of remorse, a little bit of guilt, maybe he doesn't want to take her down that path, and then that's where we start reeling Dracula back a little bit. I know he just killed an infant, mm-hmm. but there is some restraint with him about wanting to send people down this road of immortality because of how curseful it is, right, and. I think you know the, the, the Winona's whatever in this film. I think they're pretty. I think they're pretty good together, and I love this gray suit. This gray suit and this top hat. Oh, it looks amazing. Uh, and maybe that's what the dog bit's for. The dog bit is kind of his in with Mina. It's just like, oh, I'll calm this wolf down. Well, because that's what I'm asking you. Yeah. Is that wolf? Yeah. Not him. I think is that just his. I think it's familiar. I think it's separate. I think it's just like an arm, a hound from hell that he's able to summon. Okay. So then that's better. Yeah. But then what about it? Yeah. Like in, in a weird dating sense, it's, hey, come Check make, my dog. Come make a ruckus. I'm going to calm you down. And then I'm going to get her on my side. Which, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's it at all. But like it, it kind of gets them on a good, good grounds, right? It's like, hey, she sees the kind of calming of this beast and how kind of calm and tempered mannered this man is. Yeah. Let me take you home. I can't really be doing this. I'm engaged but I'm really kind of infatuated with you. I, they're starting something here. I'm, I'm willing to go with it. So yeah, maybe that's where the dog comes into play. I don't know. I don't even know if I have a good answer for you. No, it has to be because if he's not that wolf, then who bends the bars to get the wolf out? Obviously he does. So that is his hound of hell. And I guess he uses it in a seductive manner. I could tell you this one time, one time I had a puppy. And I took it to the airport to pick up what was then my girlfriend, but now my wife. Mm-hmm. 
I have never met, the true story, yeah. I have never met so many women in my entire life as I did that day with my puppy. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I used to laugh at one of my students, Jesse. He yeah. used to carry a copy of Twilight around with him. Okay. He had this book for like a year and a half. I had him for two years in a row. A year and a half into this, I'm like, Cameron, are you ever going to read that book? He's like, I don't read this book. It's shit. I'm like, so what do you do with it? Like, it's a great way to meet girls, Mr. Oh Dixon. my God, it's kind of... True ge- story. Kind of genius. Kind of is. Yeah. And it worked because he had a couple girlfriends. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not going to say it's out of the realm of possibility to get a dog because it's a good way to meet someone. <laughs> so I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm answering my own criticism here, responding we'll, to my own criticism. Maybe we'll go for, with it for now. Let's go with it for okay. now. Okay. Now, what do you think of the line? Okay, I know it's melodramatic, but... Uh... Mm. melodramatic as hell it may as well come from the words of from the mouth of bill shakespeare mm-hmm. i kind of dig it i kind of i kind of see you know how someone could fall under the spell of like man if someone told me that i've crossed oceans of time to find you and he's not wrong right i mean right. he's lived for hundreds of years in a d- derelict uh castle mm-hmm Dude, Dracula has a way with words, maybe. <laughs> it fits his character. It does. Somebody, very, he would speak like that. Very gothic, very regal, very classic. Heavy, and, heavy, heavy strings behind to let you know if this wasn't a big moment. It is a big moment. Mm-hmm. The problem is, yeah, and it makes sense. Of course he's crossed oceans of time. Like all of the oceans. Yeah. Does that become so common with dracula in this film that it starts to lose its importance there's nothing okay so here's there's nothing that's understated about the vampire in this film mm-hmm. maybe there shouldn't be yeah there's nothing understated with anyone in this film except harker and mina <laughs> and this is what i'm getting to jesse sure, so sure, sure when you're in a scene and you have van helsing mm-hmm. anthony hopkins harker Gray-haired Harker, which is the most character he shows in the entire Gray-haired movie. Gray-haired Harker, Because he's yes. been vamped so hard, it's aged him, I guess, yes, 60 dude, years. Dude, it's rogued him. <laughs> I rogued him. Yeah. Put some gloves on Van- yeah. Monica Bellucci. Yeah. So you have Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing, Oldman as Count Dracula, Carrie Elways and his crew of, I guess, soldiers, Dr. Seward with a morphine needle still in his arm. <laughs> There's so much competing drama that the only way that I think Coppola can get Dracula still remain in the title role as star is make it bigger and continually give him that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then turn him into a bat and have him do bat things and have him just, yeah, just be like ghoulish on the side and be romantic on the side. I mean, Dracula is such a Lothario that he gets Mina strung out on Absinthe, the green fairy. Oh my God. Yes. And then doesn't have his way with her. Yeah. This guy's a, what? I don't like, I don't know. But, and like the way she eats that sugar cube, like it's just so over the top. Yeah. And it, I feel like in a film, I, I feel like we need to go there. I mean, we need to, <laughs> we've been going over the top. Oh, here, yeah. Dude, we had. Infant death, and we we had uh, uh, garden sex. Yeah, let's 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 do. After Lucy gets vamped, Jesse, she's topless the rest of the film. Yeah, her boobs are out as much as her lines are. I've been wanting to ask you this: Have you ever had absinthe before? No, no, you? I've had one one time, and and uh, you know, okay, so this there's a story to this. So, um, you know, I'm a big football guy, right? You know, <laughs> um, 
So you you remember when the Broncos lost to the Baltimore Ravens on that you know yes. Joe Flacco Hail Mary Hail pass? Mary yes where it the was defensive back fell down easily the worst football loss I've ever had to watch on television. Yeah, really? uh, my friend was having kind of a going away party at a hotel casino that night. So after that horrible game, we went and drank very heavy that mm-hmm. night. And then he and one of his brothers or something had bought a bottle of absinthe. So we did every we did it with the sugar cube and had it. And I don't remember it very fondly. Like it was a fine drink. I don't I didn't see any green fairies and stuff, but dude, I was drowning like any sorrow with like anything wow. that night. It was just kind of a lot of mixing. So I don't know if I have a lot to say about it, but how was the hangover? It was probably pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> that I can remember. It wasn't the all-time worst, but it was probably, yeah, football hangover and then a booze hangover. Uh, <laughs> to your terrible day. Hey, I mean, you've got a couple of those, too. I do. Uh, I like the romantization of absinthe on film. Like, there's something like the trickling of the liquid yeah. off of the, the sugar key. Like, I can't explain it. And... Uh, Penny Dreadful. I don't know if anyone remembers that show. Mm-hmm. There was an absence scene in that with Dorian Gray and one of the, the the women in that show too, and it's just so scientific. It's just so sensual that I kind of dig it. And so, yeah, that's kind of interesting that Dracula's like here, and then she sucks the cube, and it, it is whatever. But you're right. I think we're dancing around the subject. It's so over the top, right? Yeah, it feels like it falls into like. The alchemist guide to seduction, metallurgy, all of that. But what we're getting to with Dracula and Mina, and this has to happen, is for all of the Mina, when I get home in two months, I'm going to kiss you like you've never been kissed. And she's sort of like, and what else? Well, I might give you a hug. He he doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. He has no idea what to do with her physically. Count Dracula knows exactly what to do with her. I, do you think that's the first woman he's ever sugar cubed absinthe into the sack in his life? Cause I don't not a chance, right? No, 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 no. Yeah. I think there's been many yes. that he's probably practiced that same stick on. Yeah. What were, okay. So that <laughs> fine. So he's Jeff Goldblum. So yeah, <laughs> what I'm getting to yeah. here is he's bringing up, you brought the word up uncanny, the return of the repressed. Yeah. So if you want to play the uncanny piece on this, then if Mina is the reincarnated version of Elzebieta, then obviously she and him had had this burning, burning, passionate romance once upon a time. So if she's coming back in the uncanified state Mm -hmm. of his former wife, love, whatever the hell she was, then it would make sense that he's got to tap into that to bring it out and bring her to a fully, might I say vamped without actually vamping version of his lost love. Yeah. I get it. He's he's teasing her. Mm-hmm. He's walking her down the garden path of sin. He's doing, if you want to play a lit religion too, he's all of those things. And she's all too willing to take the bait. Jesse, when they were in the movie theater and he took her in that tent, she was ready to go. Yeah. She basically said, go. Yeah. And then we're really going to see in a little while when she gets back with Harker and then they go chase him down, mm-hmm. Dracula. She's all ready to go. How much I've missed you. She doesn't respond like that to Harker after he's been gone for a year yeah, out of the sanitarium. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, I'm glad you're back. 
she misses Dracula for two months. It's like, oh my God, yeah. where have you been? Yeah. Can you make it rain again? You know, she just. <laughs> <laughs> you probably could. Yeah, you catch my drift. But I like it. I like that we're going all. I mean, this is Coppola, right? If we're going to go all in, let's just do it. Let's just let's go over the top. Let's yeah. make it crazy. Why let's not, let's right? just like, let's let's do nutty things with this because we haven't seen this before in, in a drag film. Now let's introduce, if it, if it wasn't complicated enough and if it wasn't wild enough, let's reintroduce now because Dr. Seward is like, Mina's dying from some weird thing. I have no idea what's wrong with her. She's pulsating and gasping and her clothes are off. And like, I can't <laughs> explain any of this, her loss of blood. I got to call my old p- college professor and mentor and see if he's got any idea about it. So enter Anthony Hopkins fresh off an Academy Award for playing Hannibal Lecter as Abraham Van Helsing. I think a good casting at that time. Like, of course, yeah, get Anthony Hopkins in this film. It's yeah. a name, right? Uh, he's doing some blood experiments. And I do, there's something I do appreciate about his introduction, which is amongst all these snooty gentlemen, right? And, you know, they're talking about scientific mumbo jumbo. And I like that their applause is... Yeah, they, they 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 tap on the thing, dude. We we should probably bring that back. I mean, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, that's our applause in there. But man, once they introduce this guy in the fold, this is a question I've been dying to ask you all week. Who would you want on your monster quest, or who would you not want on your monster quest? Do you not want this version of Van Helsing? Do you not want Doctor Loomis, Donald Pleasance, or do you not want Quint from Jaws? Oh, shit. I mean, all of them are bringing a batch of something to your little quest, right? What a great question. Yeah. Um, I mean, at least mm. Abraham Van Helsing has a lot of science behind him and a lot, I guess, of practice in a way. But, oh, my gosh, he's almost as crazy as Dracula in this movie. Dr. Loomis. That's that's who I don't want because I think he would use me as bait just to prove that his philosophy on Michael was correct. And I don't know if I want Quint. Either. He's at least going to try to catch the thing. He is, but he's also going to maybe kill you in the process yeah. and drown out your ship. So Yeah, they're all bad. That's kind of an interesting trope, right? They're all very Van Helsing-like in their mm. quest to slay the monster, right? And here we are with the OG. So this is Captain Ahab inspired? Very much, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Moby Dick is definitely pre-Stoker, right? Yeah. Yeah, this quest to slay the beast. You almost have to be as crazy as the monster itself. But I don't know, dude. Hopkins is on something in this. Yeah. And do you like it? Do you not like it? Oh, he's got a couple of deadpan lines that he just are so irreverent. <laughs> she was miserable till we cut off her head, and then now she's happy. Like, that line is... I kind of like that line. I do, too. No, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. And then the part when he finally deduces <laughs> what this is, and he's trying to uh, feed and screw Harker in the in the in the... Rose Garden or wherever yes, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's over the top. He's obviously drunk in this role, um, as he is most of the time on set. Um there is one very it's 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 ahead a little bit. I don't know if you want me to save it, but there is one thing in this Van Helsing role making out with Mina. <laughs> no, it's even more it's it's right after that though. Okay. Can I we can talk about it yeah. now? So after Van Helsing gets in the the film and we start to decode what we need to do to to save Mina's soul and, and defeat Count Dracula. The quest across the globe ensues. Not quite red line of travel, but kind of red line mm-hmm. of travel. We gotta beat him there. Yeah. And I like all that. Yeah. When they get to the Carpathian Mountains and it's it a time to rest for for Mina and Van Helsing. 
she tries to seduce him for the purpose of, of feeding on him. He says no, and then out of nowhere, here comes Dracula's brides. And although he protects himself and Mina with a fire circle, they devour his yeah. horses. Yes. Here's where things are crazy. Okay, so Mina seduces him. He's all too willing to kiss her back for a little while, and then he's able to finally pull the restraints up. He hunts down Dracula's brides, and he goes into their chamber. Yeah. And he, I watched this three times to make sure I wasn't wrong. Yeah. He goes in with a non-bloodstained face. Mm -hmm. He beheads all three of them and comes out with a bloodstained face, but it's only around his mouth. Jesus. Yeah. Wait, so not on his hair, yeah. not on his... What, what happened in there? If his mouth is yeah. what's bloody, yeah. did he sit down and have a slurp or two himself? I don't put it past him. Weirdo, right? He's a total weirdo. Yeah. Coppola didn't just say only put blood here because he had an oversight in that moment or the art department. I don't believe a guy that would go to the lengths that he did for the Carpathian Mountains mm -hmm. is going to miss that. No, he's too smart. Jesse, yeah. <laughs> I think Van Helsing went in there and dipped from the fountain of youth, if yeah, you will. Sure, yeah. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, of Van Helsing we have not seen before, right? And then decapitates them and then chucks their heads into the canyon? Shows them, chucks their heads in the canyon with, with blood mm -hmm. on his mouth. Yeah. If we're going to have bloody mouths yeah. in this movie, it means someone was drinking blood. Yeah. What does it mean if Van Helsing goes into that chamber and drinks the blood of Dracula's wives? Vamp out himself? Man, that's a movie. <laughs> yep. Wild, right? Uh, his introduction's pretty great, too, because, you know, he comes in and he's just like, oh, we got to do a blood transfusion. And I kind of like the transfusion scene where mm. they're just kind of like pumping and like trying to siphon out blood into another person. And I think they drink Carrie Always and Quincy yeah. and Dr. Seward, and she's still dying, right? Yeah. And then this is kind of where we get, you know, Jonathan Harker's like, okay, I've been I've been vamped to death in this <laughs> orgy room. I got to get out of here. Mm. I can't handle it. I'm, dude, I'm drained. And then he he escapes, and I kind of like his escape, too, because he's kind of like, and then he slides, right? Mm -hmm. Very, gravity's doesn't have, like, a sense here at Castle Dracul. Falls into the water, makes his escape, ends up at some gypsy hut, and then they make, get word to Mina, and she's like, my love, like, I need to go. He needs me in this time of desperation. Great, my love's alive. <laughs> yeah, that's mm -hmm. what she's saying. <laughs> But she's like, okay, in order to do this, I got to cut ties with Dracula. I mean, like, this guy has way too much of a hold on me. So she writes, she pens him a letter saying, Dracula, uh, Harker's alive. I need to go do him. I can never. I need to go do him? I need to, I can never see you again. Yeah. Mina. Mm hmm M. And then, and, M. Then, and, <laughs> M. and so he, Dracula reads this furious, right? Yeah. And then, you know, she's off to, and I, I actually, really, this might be my favorite scene of the movie, which is, the cross-cutting between them getting married at the Gypsy Hut, which I think I preluded last week, that this was kind of a real ceremony in the eyes of those actual people. Yeah. So they're, like, in, like, a weird, like... Gypsy couple. Romani, you know, ceremony, married in real life. And they've, awesome. they've addressed this, too, as kind of, like, kindred spirits, as they will. Mm -hmm. Kind of crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just the mysticism of this film. And then that's juxtaposed with Dracula going, like, dude, Lucy is toast. He, like, kills the groundspeople on this estate, and then he goes in there and the, as Wolf, Wolf Dracul, and then 
bites her up and, and she explodes on the bed. And that's the end of Lucy, right? And uh, it's kind of like the his unrequited love is now uh, back with her original love. In Romania. Yep. And then it kind of fades to black, and it's kind of an interesting kind of like closing of the chapter for like the next part. It's kind of the midpoint of the movie, right? Mm. Pretty interesting. It's some interesting visual there. And so now we have dead Lucy, but, you know... Van Helsing's like, well, this is Vampire. This is Nosferatu. She's not really dead. Uh, so we got to go finish her off for good. Wait, so she explodes in blood, and then she, her corpse is back in that casket, and this is with the wolf that escaped, as the wolf that escaped from the zoo finished her off. Like, yeah. we're, this is a mess, right? This is a mess. Okay. If she explodes like that, then... There should be nothing left. You don't have, he doesn't have to make her explode. Well, like I don't that. think her body explode. I mean, the blood exploded. Yeah. I mean, so like there's no blood left in her. I mean, dude, yeah, she's white as <laughs> white as a sheet. She's whiter than the white clothes she has on. And then they put her in like a weird, like almost kind of like a wedding dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like his bride. Yeah. And then, so this is a pretty great, yeah, this is where we get that deadpan line of like, oh, we need to go cut her head off and stick her in the heart kind of thing. Just like no tact with Van Helsing. And then, <laughs> so they go into the crypt. And then in a moment that it was alluded to in the original Todd Browning version, which is she's, Lucy's getting out and she's snatching children in the night. <laughs> uh, we get to see that a little bit. She's coming back with the kid mm-hmm. in her in her arms here. And they filmed all this backwards, by the way. So, you know how she comes down the stairs and then the candles light up. They actually filmed it, her walking backwards and then extinguishing the candles. But it kind of almost like in a end scene of Carrie, right? Remember where Amy Irving goes to the grave and that was done backwards? It looks very dreamy and ghostly. Yeah. She shows up here and uh, I think I have the clip, uh, which I think is this one. Come to me, Arthur. Leave these up. Hungry for you, my darling. Kiss me and caress me. My darling husband, please. Holy crap! You're stronger than the Lord! The power of his might! You're stronger than the Lord! The power of his might! The power of God is upon us! We are strong in the Lord and the power of his might! We are strong in the Lord and the power of his might! We're strong in the Lord and the power of might. Ex umbris in lucha. I bring you from shadow into light. I cast you out, the prince of darkness, into hell. A moment's courage and it is done. Take the stick in your left hand. Place the point of the heart. Then in God's name, strike. Do it now! You know, their head floats across the screen. It's it's a pretty gruesome little sequence, right? Yeah. She vomits blood on, on him. Very exorcist-like, right? I mean, there's a lot of fluid spewing, and power of Christ compels you in that tale. And he's kind of doing the same thing. Like, let me quell this beast of the devil, right? Yeah. Kind of a cool scene. Yeah. I, I kind of like that. And we we don't obviously don't get that in the Todd Browning version. I mean, Lucy's snatching kids and we just stopped talking about it in that movie. Right. Yeah. So you want to talk about dropped plot lines here. But, mm. you know, uh, uh, Mina and Jonathan come back uh, and 
it's like we need to gather our strength. We have a beast to kill. Uh, what do you mean? And so this is the gathering of arms, the vampire hunters. We need to go to Carfax Abbey. We needed to crush his, his earth. In between, he goes and kills Renfield, right, for betraying him as the Green Mist. And we get a pretty interesting sequence here where they're crushing earth and then uh, Dracula's crushing hearts, right? Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like the final plea. It's like, Mina, if you come with me, I will show you things you have never seen before, right? Come with me. I'll show you everlasting life. And, dude, she buys into it. And we got to talk about this scene, too. So, you know, he vamps her. Mm -hmm. uh, And then... You know, they're kissing, it's they're, they're writhing around on the sheets here, and then he like slices like kind of like underneath like his like nipple. Drink from me, Mina. That way you have the power of the Dracul, right? And so she starts, you know, drinking from him. But it, it's very Christ-like. It's kind of like where he got pierced in the side with the spear, right? Oh, wow, yeah. Uh so all the, these just parallels between religion and just pure evil, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're doing a reincarnation thing, and is, reincarnation is kind of the antithesis of Christian mythology, right? Christian mythology is heaven and the afterlife. Reincarnation is like, no, I'm going to come back as like 10 other people. Yeah. So we're kind of playing off of that as well. I kind of like this scene. I, it's weird as hell. It's, you know, Gary Oldman is all mustached out. Yeah. He looks, he's, he's kind of sexy, if I, if, I, if, I, if I say, in kind of a weird Romanian 1897 way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, what do you think of all this? The vamping of her and kind of bringing her over to that side. They do a great job of showing how much fire Mina has in his presence compared to how little she has in Harker's presence. Yeah. On Harker's best day, greatest seductive act, he gets a third of what Mina's giving Count Dracula in this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you start to wonder with Harker, as this ultimate good guy, this Boy Scout, this wooden milk toast Boy Scout, are you able to recognize that you're fighting against a centuries-old romance that was wrongly taken from two people that they have found a chance to rekindle? And I don't expect Harker to realize any of that. That's far beyond his ability to comprehend. But what he should be able to comprehend is, man, compared to me... My girl's just not, or compared to him, my girl's just not into me that much. Sure. He has to see that. And then the question becomes... Who, Harker? Uh-huh. And he he admits I th- I he admits he, at the end of the film. I he think d- he sees it. I think he's powerless to stop it. He can't. What can you do? I mean, you can do the right thing and make sure that she's okay and that everyone... Dude, us going toe-to-toe with Dracula, dude, we're losing. We're losing. We can't win. <laughs> you can't win. And you have to accept that. Yeah. And by the end, when he says they have work to do at the end, I think he comes to terms with that. I don't think there's, we're going to get back together after she finishes this guy. And does he even want That's to? That's kind of a great moment. It's a great moment. It's like a realization of, I've lost her. That weirdness, though, that they're so comfortable and willing to engage in in the bed for all of the anti-religion, sacrilegious, passion, exchange of fluids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That only seems to make sense to those two. Yep. That's the, that's the tip of the spear on great coupledom, Jesse, yeah. when it only makes sense to you and the other. Yeah. And that's all it should make sense to. The rhyme and the reason for them cannot be yours. And if you're trying to match it or find it, it's just not meant to be. So as we, and you said it, it's weird. Um, 
orgasmic. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are in semi states of euphoria, orgasm yeah, lot, in this film. There's a lot of a lot. moaning. In this Pretty movie. much Lucy the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. Very breathy. Yeah. Okay, fine. But engaged in that act, which is beyond intimate, if there's such thing. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them's looking for the door. No. Right. They're both good with it. Yeah. So, in a sad kind of tragic way. Harker's winning by losing because I don't know if he wants that version of me in any way. She's a fucking mess by the time Dracula's done with her, Jesse. She's yeah. a vampire. Yeah. A, a touch of the cross on her forehead leaves a wealth the size of Texas. Yeah. So he wins by losing, and then he sort of defaults into the sacrificial hero that has to let his love go because he loves her so much that she's found who she wanted to be with, even though he's a terrible person. That's a really complex. Yeah. And, but that's what, that's what um, Stoker, I'm sorry, Coppola set out in the opening. Mm-hmm. We talked about religion and love. Yeah. And if you're going to come, if you're going to compare count Dracula in this scene with the spear in the ribs and where he's cut and the feasting and all of that, that's in play, mm-hmm. then I guess he fulfills on that promise. That just leaves Harker as Peter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I know what apostle he is, Peter. Yeah, or I don't know what he's going to do after this, right? Yeah. I guess Renfield's very Judas-like, right? In this trade in this tale, right? There's no kiss, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, I, I, I'm very fascinated by that. I think there's a lot to read into there. I think it comes across pretty well, even though I think Winona's very... Poorly miscast. Let's talk about her real, real quickly. So, well, how do you? How, wait, one more thing on this. Yeah. How do you make love to a vampire? Because if you go by traditional lore, like Anne Rice, yeah. When you become a vampire, mm-hmm. you lose your genitalia. Now, mm-hmm. we would say that the movie tends to tell otherwise after what he's doing to Lucy in the courtyard. Yeah. But regardless, <laughs> okay. Um, the penetration and exchange of fluid for vampires is blood and teeth, but yeah. in other humans, it's not. Yeah. It's it's not. Yeah. So I guess you do the way that they're doing. Yeah. Now, if someone offered that to me, I'd have to love them a whole hell of a lot to even consider that. Mostly, I'd be and you would be too running. Yeah. But because she's okay with it, that love is so vast, and it's crossed oceans of time, and it's reincarnated. It all makes sense, but I guess that's how they they love each other. Imagine throwing Harker in any piece of that. Mm-hmm. Wait, you want me to do what? You, you want me to take off my shirt? Yeah. <laughs> you want me to take off my I mean, shirt? That'd be the start. You, yeah, Mina, yeah. you are entirely too naked right now. Yeah. Put on these trousers. You know I mean? Like, he has- and Turn that light off. <laughs> yeah, you want the light on? Mina. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I, I I can see why she's going after him. And then mm-hmm. when the film ends, I'm just like, yeah, maybe good for her. Yeah, and good for him too. <laughs> good for him. And now maybe Harker has in some weird like third wheel uh, in this relationship <laughs> has some clarity on like what he wants in his relationship going forward. The ultimate wingman. Yeah. Poor Harker. Poor Harker. Uh, You're going to say something. Yeah, let's talk about Winona for a second because I think we did this on our Godfather 3 episode because she was supposed to play the Mary Corleone character in that film. And I think we did a whole bit on that where we she was just burnt out uh, and had to pull out kind of like while they were filming, right? And then Sofia Coppola got thrown into that role and we know how that went, right? Mm -hmm. 
So she actually brought this script by James V. Hart to Coppola as kind of a way to like make amends and make sure they were still on good terms for kind of feeling like she pulled out and kind of screwed up that film, like her role at least. And so mm. she's the one that brought it to his attention. And then dude, Coppola saw Dracula. He's like, I've always really liked this story. And this is kind of a cool end to it. So the other interesting thing that Coppola did was for a whole month, they went up to Napa Valley to his estate and they just did, re- they read the book. They went through the script. They did acting exercises. They did chemistry exercises. They kind of rewrote the script around some of the things that actors were coming up with just to kind of get familiar with each other. And I got to tell you, not Mm. every director does that, but I think it shows Coppola's investment into the, into directing and he's an actor's director. I think I'm going to play something here too. And it's going to sound contentious, but uh, I don't think you can disagree with, you know, both both people. I mean, I think this is a creative environment that you would kind of thrive in. If you, if it's, if you could give me a position, it's Gary Oldman, as it were. Your entrance position is where you come right in, where you were coming in. You know, right, you come in right. Where it's just at the top of the stairs. You're as equally below him as you were above him. But this is not it. Cut. 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 So nothing like what we're doing. You, you, you saying the line? No, because... The only way to do it is to say the lines, because then you know that when you're at that line, to live in a new house would kill me. I don't know what you're waiting for, because we can't kill you. You're the one doing... No, I'm I'm waiting for Keanu. What I'm doing is waiting for Keanu, because I can stop... What are you waiting for Keanu? Keanu never does anything. You just walk right out of the thing. Action! To live into a new house would kill me, and then you come through. Okay? It's just that one line I'm going for. I know you are. I know you are. I know you are. Know you are. Why, why is it no, I can't do no, it? No, all I'm saying is, is that where Keanu is starting, and that time I did the whole speech. I know that's the problem. All I need is a mark. It, 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 even if it's a white chalk mark on the there step. isn't such when, a mark it goes I, by I, the line I yes mean, but then i can enter francis no, i no, get no. Um, a little overzealous and i want my way too sometimes i am a descendant from an old family and it's really no you're in too you're in too early jack i Mark that. I really wanted an actor. You know, I think Dracula is an actor. You know, the devil is an actor because there is no such thing as evil. There is no devil. You need an actor to impersonate the devil. Okay, this is it. This is it, Anthony Hopkins. This time you go too far. You go over the end to the evil. It's really involved, right? Yeah. Really trying to bring forth it like I, I like it because you know Oldman as an actor is waiting for his mark. Like when I hit that stare, that's when I say that thing. That's why I'm waiting for Keanu. And Coppola is like, well, fuck the mark on the thing. It's when you hit that line. That's when you hit it, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I like this collaborative process between them. And Coppola's been like that his whole career, right? Yep. With Marlon Brando and the likes of Pacino and all these heavy actors that he's worked with. I kind of really appreciate something like that. And I know it sounds like, oh my God, these guys are fighting. No, they're trying to figure it out together. Yeah, Dracula's not the kind of guy that speaks upon a mark. Mm -hmm. It's the presence. It's not the place. Yeah. And I think that's what he's getting to. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, as much as that might sound contentious, it seems like they're in a good space and communicating with yeah. each other pretty openly. Communication, yeah. That seems like in that particular instance, Coppola won. I guarantee there's a few where Oldman won. Yeah. Had to have. Yeah, back and forth, yeah. And that's how you figure something out, right? That's how you kind of fall in line with like what this thing is supposed to look like. It's good. Yeah, cool. that's from the behind-the-scenes uh, making of stuff, which is just awesome to to watch and it, it's awesome seeing keanu in there because you get a 92 keanu who's just like oh my god i'm like i'm in a movie man and he's just like really excited to like be a part of this whole thing so it's just really awesome. it's really genuine but let's get to the finale of this film here you know where it's you know they crushes earth dracula's got to get back to borgo pass and to the carpathia mountains to his castle because he's got nowhere to sleep now and it's a race to get there before he does and kill him before he can essentially gain more power from his home estate, right? Mm -hmm. You said you like this uh, kind of a lot, this final chase. You want to kind of speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I love that through, like Van Helsing goes with a pretty good plan. That's how we can get there before he gets there on horse versus in the sea. But there's this chess match that's happening, one playing ahead of the other. Mm, good. And what Dracula's doing is he's using Mina as a sounding board to hear what the plan is. And then that devolves into, well, we need to tell Mina what we're, what we're going to do and then not do that so that she'll think this and lead him down this false path. But then that leaves Mina and Van Helsing wide open as bait. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go around this. They're going to run the rock of Gibraltar. We have spies there. We're going to cut through these. We're going to, all that's really, really cool. The geography and the strategy of how we get to point X before Dracula is really, really interesting. Yeah. It's short. It's not very long. Mm -hmm. But I love that Dracula and Van Helsing are matching wits. And then we get that weird scene that we already talked about. Then right? you get the weird scene with the wives <laughs> and Van Helsing, you know, drinking their blood. The thing that, that trips me out the whole time during this sequence is, and we've kind of alluded to it already, is that like Mina is like kind of like trying to dig her heels in a little bit. Yeah. And she's under the vamp spell, right? Uh, she doesn't want to go through with the plan. She doesn't want to be used as bait. She loves this man and doesn't want to see anything bad happen to him. Right. Up until the very end. Uh, I think it's a pretty interesting finale. I mean, the Todd Browning one ended in a Carfax Abbey basement. Uh, <laughs> some of the other ones, you know, they kind of just end up in like, you know, the the holding cell of the the coffin. But here, you know, it's out in the open. It's They're trying to beat the sun, mm -hmm. like this race to beat the sun. And then he bursts from the box, so he has supreme power. And then, you know, Harker, for the first time in this entire film, does the right thing and slits his throat, right? Yeah. And then we get that moment, right, where he scampers into the inner threshold and uh, Mina follows after him. And it's like, this is what needs to happen, or as, as Van Helsing says. And then we get this final uh, moment here, which is juxtaposed with the beginning of the film, right? Mm -hmm. Mina drowned out, bloodied at the stoops of this cross, right? Now it's Dracula bleeding out in his Technicolor dream coat and them having to realize, or her having to realize, once the spell's dissipating, right? 
I got to do the right thing. And so she stakes him with the sword and then lops his head off. But dare I say, is it tragic? It's kind of tragic. It's kind of like you kind of want to see these two end up together because they're kindred spirits and reincarnation happens again. Even it's monstrous in every sense of the word. Yeah. But there is a little bit of melancholy to it uh, oh, yeah. at the end of the day. She's had to kill her lover, and I think that he's incited something in her that no one has ever. So for the betterment of society, mankind, it's probably good that he's no longer a presence that we have to deal with. But on the individual level for her, she's had to do in this guy that she's loved in whatever state reincarnated her original for 500 years. Yeah, And so... To all of the criticisms, I think, that maybe we've levied on Winona from time to time in the show, she is pretty good in this. Like, yeah. you do feel the pain and the difficulty that it's going to take for her to finish this off. And you know what else I really like about it? I like that it's not this throwing people across gorges and slamming people into drawbridges. And <laughs> yeah. I, I like that it's he emerges from the box right as the sun sets, yeah. about to be fully powerful, and Harker gets him just in time yeah on the neck which of course that's yeah. a great way to do in dracula because that's how he's done in everybody else mm -hmm. and then you just let him bleed out now quincy still gets it i think that one of dracula's yeah, he, gypsies kills him he dies or is going to yeah he does die mm -hmm. but um it the battle sort of already happened the battle isn't so much this violent action that needs to take place between those two the battle was really for the girl and it's kind of nice i think this might be one of the few dracula adaptations where it isn't Van Helsing that's staking the final stake, right? That Mina's getting to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty good ending. And then it ends with the the mural that was painted of them centuries ago of them like in the throes of whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we end on. Kind of reincarnation wins at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And then we get to credits. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty frenzied little finale. And there's a lot to dive into there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not a bad conclusion. Oddly, I think it's the part of the film that I remember the least every time. The end? Like, I think I'm in it, like the beginning, the middle, and then up to Man Bat Dracula. And then this end, I'm like, I like it, but I, I, I always tend to like not remember the intricacies of that entire sequence. Mm -hmm. So you talking about like the blood, I think that I need to go back and check out that scene. It's pretty wild. Yeah. But... Uh, a couple things here, and I, I want to do a little uh, a little thing here in a second. Won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design, Sound Editing, and Makeup. You can yeah. definitely see that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I want to go to music school for, for just a second. So the, the score for this was done by Wojcik Kilar. Didn't do a lot. He, I think he did a score for like the Ninth Gate and kind of a few other genre films like that. But this is his, you know, most, you know, uh, his biggest uh, film that he was ever a part of. I want to play just a couple things just to kind of show you the dynamic of what this kind of score looked like. I already played Vampire Hunters. Mm -hmm. um, let me play this one first for you. Okay.
So this is the cue of music that's played when he sees M- Mina's photo. Remember the ink falls on it? Yeah. When he sees Mina's photos for uh, for the first time. And what's nice is it's kind of a layered composition where you hear that boom, 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 boom. So that's like the horror piece, but then you have the strings. It's very romantic, yeah. romanticized. So you can kind of see how they're peppering in the, the, the love element of uh, the story that we've been talking about. And then anytime you bring in a chorus into any film score, I think religion every time. I think of like, you know, when you go to church and you have people singing the psalms and the hymns, uh, it's always got these religious overtones to it. And so you got that very angelic voice kind of laid on top of all of that. It's nice. It's pretty good. It's haunting, mm-hmm. but kind of beautiful at the same time. Right, yeah. The, the next one is the one at the beginning of the film. So that's at the beginning of the film when he renounces Christ and drinks from the goblet of blood mm-hmm. and becomes Dracul, right? Yeah. In that, I, I want I want your, your your comments and perspective as well. You know, you have that same chorus I was talking about that sounds very Catholic and Christ, Christian and angelic. And then underneath that, I don't know if you heard it, but there's like this like... There's like mm-hmm. almost like another voice in there. Yeah. Very demonic. Talking very in tongues. Very supernatural, right? And then you have that like that like snare drum, like and then the brass at the end. Dude, that's speaking to my heart, right? It's just like there's so much going on there. Like, what do you think of that? I mean, that's that's to announce evil. Does it do that? Oh yeah, there's nothing pleasant about that. It's harsh. It's 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 paced. It's marching orders essentially. Yeah, that's excellent work. And then the final one here, uh, this is kind of a little bit of their love theme. This is kind of when she's being vamped out in uh, Dr. Seward's little quarters there.
wasn't it? A little painful and oddly classical. Like that mm-hmm. feels like something that could be in Browning's film, right? Yeah. Uh, old school orchestration, sweeping strings, romantic, but yeah, painful. I think I think that's a great word to to describe that. It's, it is a bit of a painful relationship. Yeah. Uh, I can't. You know. The score has all of that. It's horrific. It's it's intense. It's Christian. It's demonic. It's beautiful. It's very nuanced. And I I, I got I did that because I I got to sing some praises of this guy because sure. I think it's a great musical score. I think it fits the film really well through wildly different sounds. Yeah, and I'm gonna play one more in just in just a little bit. But before we get to that. What's your favorite tasting note of Bram Stoker's Dracula? I think I told you it's that vamp scene for Harker. Mm-hmm. Not for the reasons everybody's like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> not the reason. I think that's really interestingly shot. And I've always been a fan of Dracula's wives. I think there's so many stories that were never told there and the, the terrible, terrible actions that those women engage in, if that's what you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big fan of that character in fiction anyway. So it's handled really, really well by Coppola and this. Great scene. Uh, you might be interested in uh, Hammer Horror's Dracula series, which is like an eight-film series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second film in that, after Horror of Dracula, is actually Brides of Dracula. So you might want to check that Seven one out. out. Yeah, it's not, not bad. Okay. Uh, mine's the returning to Jonathan, final vamping of Mina, kind of juxtaposition, wedding death scene. I think it's handled really well. It's gruesome. And then you had gray haired Keanu. They're really getting married here. And then Dracula's kind of in rage mode, right? Almost like a baptism and assassination scenes dueling in the Godfather. There you go. There you go. That's what I'm glad you brought that up. Cause when I was watching that wedding scene, I was like, Coppola's really good at scenes that take place in a church. Yeah, he is. <laughs> like, that verbatim, the, 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 the speaking of, you know, the, the priest's words to the parties He's really good at that. And I kind of don't know a lot about his religious background. He, he had to have been Catholic, right? Had to have been. Yeah. Had to have been. Um, okay, give me a second here. What is the... Oh, my God! Moment of Dracula where you need to have some more red wine cask finish to wipe your taste of that scene. That Van Helsing bit. I'm really having a hard time digesting what did Van Helsing do to those brides oh, okay. in, yeah. that, in that chamber. Mm. That's not a natural spill of blood on him. It is done that way for a purpose. And I don't doubt that that guy would dip his toes into that waiting pool. So oh, be like, hey, this might be kind of interesting. Pretty for me. weird, man. Yeah. So that's the one for me. Great moment. I'm actually going to go with. I'm going to go with blood transfusion scene. Mm-hmm. I think you just weird mixes of medicine and science and horror work really well for me. And that one's really good. And so scenes in The Exorcist where, you know, Reagan's being like, you know, the endoscopy mm-hmm. weird sequences in the hospital. Like, those mm-hmm. are the scenes that I think are really wiggy and not the demonic scenes. Mm. And I think the blood, the, just something about blood coming through a rubber tube into another thing and then that's going into another person. There's something kind of gross about it, but she needs it to survive. And then it doesn't do a bit of good anyway, right? Because right. she's got the curse of Nosferatu. That's going to be my, 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 uh, oh my God. Good choice. Thank you. Who's the master distiller on Bram Stoker's Dracula? Coppola. I think there's no lengths that he spared in trying to deliver a unique take on him. I don't know if it all works, but I do, I can certainly, and again, this is 
something that this man's not afraid of, and that's tackling big projects yeah. and really going all in. You got to admire something about that, right? I right. mean, it, there's it, no 90 minute films in this guy's filmography. If it's successful or not, the guy like can be confident and be like, I just, I, I went, I died into the deep end on this one, right? Yeah. So I'm going to give it to him. And I didn't just do that musical bit for nothing. It's Wojcik Kilar, uh, fantastic musical score. Uh, and for me personally, it's one of the finest film scores I've ever come across. It's, uh, it's, really listenable. I need to track down a copy of this on vinyl. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love it. I I just love all the, just the differences in, in there and maybe a bit of a tease on another musical score coming here in the not too distant future. Mm. Uh, Excellent. How are you going to rate and grade Dracula? We have rock gut, well call single barrel and top shelf before you do how you rate in this whiskey single barrel. This is really good. Yeah, uh, we put a big dent in this today, so obviously we're liking it a lot too. Where are you at on this? I think I'm going top shelf on this one. It's pretty damn good, huh? We've had two really good bottles in a row. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a bad bottle in a long time, which I'm fine with. Maybe we'll have a bad bottle in purpose in the not too distant future. Rot gut cast coming up again. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We'll have to do it. Those are fun. How am I rating this? Uh, In a lot of ways, this is one of the most frustrating films I've ever watched. There is all the elements in there film-wise and personally-wise, for this to be an amazing, great all-timer for me. It doesn't get there. The melodrama to me is sometimes so silly, it takes me out of it. Uh, It plays a little fast and loose with the rules of the vampire insofar as how big they can be. But there's a lot of really positive to it. It looks amazing. Gary Oldman is really good at this. Um, and I can appreciate taking a creative spin on a very, very well-known story and not destroying what the story is at the same time. I think that, ooh, that's, that's really well said. Yeah, on a well-told story already, right? That everyone knows. And that we didn't love the original on anyway. I know, right? Uh, and doing kind of a unique, interesting in on it, right? So... Yeah, call? Like, uh, this is know. Call. I don't know what your rating is. Yeah, okay. It's Call. Okay. Um, I have to revisit this film about every five to seven years, and I'm like, I sh- I'm going to watch that. I really want to watch that again. And there's always the hype to watch it. Yeah. There are parts in it, though, that I am like, God, get through this. This is bullshit. And there's parts that are like, that was mastery. So maybe you can go in with the music angle next time. That's good. I, I hadn't thought about that. Okay. Um, you certainly can't notice, but notice the music in this film, but I hadn't thought about approaching it in that manner. Uh, I think it balances his books, it, but yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a, dare I say, this is crazy. It's a, it's an average in film. It's, it's fine. It's just fine. I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair for this property. Cause at times like, I mean, like you see the actors attached, the director attached. I mean, this should be just top shelf across the board. Um, and there are really good things about it. Uh, I'm going to go single barrel for this one. It's my second favorite Dracula film. I love Gary Oldman in it. I love the music. I love Coppola's direction. I love all, you know, you know me, I love all the technical Mm -hmm. in, uh, eccentricities of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. So them doing all those crazy things just to do a visual effect. I I really like it. And we didn't talk about the moment when, when daylight Dracula, uh, shows up on the London streets it kind of goes to old timey film footage. Yeah. They filmed with an actual camera from like the 1920s, like a really old camera That's that cool. like very few people knew how to operate just to get that effect of just like the grainy, grainy and the film rate, right? It was yeah. just kind of moved weird. 
because that's what they had at the time. Mm-hmm. So I kind of respect a lot of that. The effort is absolutely there. Uh, my favorite Dracula film is Horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. But man, when Matt, when are we going to do a Hammer horror film? Because I love the House of Hammer so much for how schlocky and gratuitous and just fun it is. October? We got to do it one of these days, right? Why not? And I, uh, there's a few we could we could pick from, but... We're about to get into a busy period for the show, though. This is not what can we fill the cask up we're getting into summer season. Yeah, it's yeah. there's always a ton of offerings, right? But Coming, yeah, yeah, it's a single barrel for me. I think it's Coppola's last good film. We'll have to see what Megalopolis offers us, us next year, but I think it was kind of a swan song for him, mm-hmm. so to speak, and... Hearing him go toe to toe with Oldman's kind of fun, and the 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 film school that they went to the month prior. I mean, there was a lot of effort that went into this product, but the, he kind of went all in on most of his things uh, that kind of turned out pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, and then this is just for fun because we we did a whole thing on Renfield. Renfield's kind of absent from this film. Tom Waits is in but a handful of scenes, and you know what I really liked? I liked the the bite boxes that the other uh, employees yeah. were wearing. They couldn't get to them. <laughs> They're kind of cool and kind of gruesome, right? Mm-hmm. Very raw and uh, uh, crude. Um, but here's a Renfield clip. It's from a film we've already talked about, but this is from Dracula Dead and Loving It. Oh. You'll stay here till you rot. <laughs> well, you're free to go. Free to go? Why? How? Good behavior. But I've only been in here for a moment. <laughs> well, for that moment, your behavior was very good. Uh, let's go. Watch step. <laughs> I'm coming, master. I know what they're up to. They think I'll lead them to the master. I must outsmart them. Gentlemen, we are fortunate. Why? He's an imbecile. <laughs> Peter McNichol. Dude, God bless Peter McNichol. All he does for the visual of that, he goes, I must lose them. He runs around in a circle, stops, does this. He, he looks left to right, moves to another location, looks left to right, and goes, I lost them. <laughs> <laughs> and then takes off. Pretty hilarious. And they're obviously spiffing or uh, spoofing... Uh, the original Dracula, and then this film too, right? This was kind of a direct response to Coppola's Dracula. Right. And then it kind of spawned also Kenneth Branagh's reimagining of Frankenstein. What do you what do you think of that film real quickly? And would you ever want to talk about it one yeah, day? Yeah, I would. I okay, would. Okay. Um, I don't know what I think about that film. There's some moments that are great. There's some moments that aren't. But yeah, I'd want to talk about that film. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, you, you know, Kenneth Branagh, like, married? I think a married man falling in love with Helena Bonham Carter and then having like an affair with her while they're making that movie. Oh, is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, broke up his marriage and everything. So what's her name? Um, the chick from dead ringers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what the hell's her name? We'll, we'll look it up here in a second, but yeah, yeah. It was like an onset affair that on top of everything else. Right. Wow. Yeah. But let's wrap this up with a nightcap.
So that's from the storm sequence mm-hmm. when he's arriving. Dude, that brass. You're just like, you know I like brass. You know I like jazz. So yeah. like when I hear that like harsh, like boom, sharp. Boom, I love it. It's really good. One of my favorite things. What's the guy's name again? Wojcik Kieler? I think he's German. Mm-hmm. Very few film credits, but... That's you know, Coppola, one. the first time in, like, I think his career, I'm not going to go with someone in my family to compose the music. Yeah. I'm going to go with this guy. Kind of paid off. Uh, speaking of Coppola, you know, this was kind of a fun little question to ask. F- kind of like in a fantasy sports category. I give you prime Coppola at the height of his powers. So think 1974 post-Godfather Part Two Coppola, and you can give him any project ever whether it was something that ever got made or something from any era of filmmaking, the 20s, 30s, 40s, current day, what project are you going to give Prime Coppola to just slay? Well, I'm going to answer with the question okay. because I'm going to give you these and you're going to say, well, that's obviously this movie, Matt. So here are the elements of this movie. Troubled family upbringing. Okay. Political favors granted to um, positions of power so that you can carry on your nefarious dealings. Um, battle for the illicit trade and distribution of goods in areas that you're not supposed to sell. Um, a son who is trying to fill the mighty shoes of his father, the legacy that the father has left behind for the son. What movie am I talking about in Coppola's? <laughs> yeah, The Godfather, right? No, I'm talking about The Phantom Menace. That's what he should have had. Mm-hmm. He should have got the prequel to Star Wars because all of the elements for that are in that film. He could have killed it. And it wouldn't have killed it like it did when we saw what we saw. And guess who George Lucas's best friend is? Ah, uh, there's that Francis too. For couple. <laughs> that's who. That's should, awesome. That's who should have got that whole trilogy, the whole thing, all three of them. Okay. I know we we banged on trade routes, but the difference between we trade ha- routes and a turf war we, is minimal if handled properly. We haven't done it yet, but when we do, it's going to be legendary. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And then you think about all of the father son problems, and then think about this being betrayed by the one who brought you up is that the godfather or is that obi-wan and anakin that's pretty good you see what i'm saying they were right there and we're throwing a bone to coppola in the later parts of his career where he kind of had nothing right could have been so much better could that possibly rival the original trilogy of done oh rival i think it might surpass it because you and i kind of agree that's like one and a half good films Maybe two good films of that yeah, original yeah, two, three. Yeah, two. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I, I never, that didn't even float my boat, so to speak. Great choice. Thanks. And that seems so obvious, right? He didn't talk to Francis Ford Coppola. Maybe Coppola said, brother, I'm not touching that. That's a fucking nightmare. Have at it. I don't want to be part of this. Maybe. It's too maybe. big. It's too big, right? Maybe. Yeah. Pretty good. I'm also going to go fairly on. I have a couple honorable mentions as well. And I, if you do, uh, please, please, um, Give them out, but ensemble, big, grandiose, fantastic. I'm going to pick something that's actually my favorite trilogy of all time, and Mm. I think it's perfect, but Francis Ford Coppola doing Lord of the Rings might be pretty Mm. great, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, His ability to balance ego and cast on a grand scale, I mean, the Godfather films, Apocalypse Now, this film, I think he could have done some interesting things with Middle Earth if he really wanted to go there. That's good. Uh, Not taking anything away from Peter Jackson's, like I said, perfect trilogy, but a Coppola spin on that, I'm kind of on board for. Mm -hmm. I I, I might want to see what that looks like. That's good. Yeah. 
Oh, if that's made in the late seventies, dude, late seventies Coppola doing Lord of the Rings. That could have been awesome. Is Marlon Brando playing Gandalf? <laughs> yeah. I, sign me up. And refusing to learn his lines, right? Mm-hmm. Dude, what's he calling? He's calling a hobbit a hibbit or something. <laughs> I do, I'm not going to say it. It's hibbit. That's awesome. Any honorable mentions? Yeah, Big I property? kicked the tires on The Matrix a little bit, all three of those, because you thought the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that first movie's great, but then it gets really, really lost in the Wachowski starship or whatever the hell they ended up becoming. Um, yeah. I I'm thought about you. that. I'm I thought about you. that a little bit. Yeah, maybe it's a good one. Yeah. And then another one, um, it's been made twice. I think one of the ad- adaptations is pretty amazing. We got another one coming out later this year, but dude, give Coppola, I think the Dune property, mm. another big ensemble mm-hmm. scale sci-fi mm-hmm. that might be pretty good. Yes, that might be. Uh, I also kind of toyed around with Citizen Kane in a Coppola space. Mm, you know, character study, obsessive, ensemble. You know, ensembles, I think, is his forte, right? He oh. could have done a better job on Mank than what we saw. I guarantee you that. Oh, and he had to have known the history of that story. Absolutely, yeah. Fucking Mank. What do you think about that? I mean, like, for a, we don't, we, we, we spend some time with directors, but we don't, I don't think, talk about this fairly frequently. Like, the ability to handle. A lot of people, a lot of ego in a big story. I, I, you can't give that to anybody. You can't give that to like a Michael Bay. I mean, we've no. seen what he kind of does with that and bastardizes it. Mm-hmm. But that's a very specific talent. I think Nolan has a little bit of that uh, with a lot of people in a, in a big story. But and Spielberg to some extent, but not, not Hitchcock. I don't even know if I give that to Hitchcock to balance out. He has enough time trying to wrangle in like <laughs> Tippy Hedren and Rod Stewart or Rod Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm. it's a very specific skill, but I think when when it comes off right, I mean, you get some really big and really great films. Well, we're gonna see. Nolan's gonna get his biggest ensemble piece this summer with Oppenheimer. And by the way, are you fired up to see Oldman as Truman in that? Yeah, I think that can be great. So you play at the same time and the cast, same. That cast is amazing. You've done Winston <laughs> Churchill and Harry S. Truman. Yeah among others, but that's it's pretty good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cillian Murphy. This is that moment for him. And this is his moment, right? This is that moment. It's, it's late in his career. I mean, he's not young anymore. He's not new anymore. He's been really close. He's in that close, but can't quite get there. And I tried Peaky Blinders and I couldn't do it, dude. Like I couldn't do it, but and it Holly- wasn't because of him. Hollywood likes stories like that too. This kind of like late bloomer, like finding this role that like brings him to more masses, right? Yeah. I can't wait for that film. I know. Uh, we'll probably cover that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to that, to your rating, uh, it's been kind of fun talking about the the world of Dracula. And, you know, we did the vampire cask with Lost Boys, Fright Night, and The Hunger, and that was just like vampire proper. But it's been fun to talk about the source, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why are we even talking about those things in the first place? Well, it's this guy, right? Yeah. Bram Stoker and Renfield and Dracula, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've got a big film coming out next week. Uh, something we don't shy away from on this podcast, which is the Marvel cinematic universe. And <laughs> what we'll, we'll, yeah, we haven't talked about any of those and our thoughts and feelings on them, No, but we got a big film. That's going to kind of start the whole summer movie season. As you alluded to a busy time for us on the, on the show here and guardians of the galaxy volume three. Uh, I can't wait to see it. You know, I do like the other two guardians films. This is kind of James Gunn's swan song before he, 
goes and does the DC thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm curious to see how they wrap up this lineup of Guardians, right? Yeah. And what I want to know is, is there anything in here that's going to allude to where the hell the MCU is going? I'm going to say maybe not. It's maybe a self-contained ordeal, but hey, I just need a good story at this point. I think you do too, right? Boy, that's for sure. Uh, but I think we'll give everyone a week to catch that film. That way we don't spoiler spoiler it right out of the gate. So here's a cask for you, Matt. Yeah. Calling it Superhero Grab Bag. And the way we're going to do it, we're going to bookend Guardians with a choice from myself and a choice from you. And You going to go first? Well, it's up. Uh, do you want to go first or do you want to let me go first? It's up to you. I'm going to let you go first. Me? Yeah. All righty. So instead of doing Guardians next week, we'll kind of start with a different superhero film. And I got a lot of other possibilities. If you want to hear some of them after my, my choice, I will let you have them. Okay. Um, I thought about going in, or maybe I'll do it now. I thought about going into the X-Men verse because mm-hmm. we shockingly haven't gone there yet. Nope. I thought about Darkman. I thought about, you know, uh, the Shadow and the Phantom, maybe have some fun. I was like, is this the time to do Batman Forever with Matt and have some fun with it? But I'm going back to the source. I'm going back to the origins in a huge film, and I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet. 1978, Richard Donner's Superman the Movie. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's going to be good. Speaking of Marlon Brando refusing to learn lines. Yep. Uh, how this even began in the first place. Uh, so I guess the rules of this cast were, it can be, it doesn't have to be DC or Marvel. It just has to be a superhero. can be spec, can be in the page, whatever you want. And I really want to talk about this film and its legacy and the character and Christopher Reeve as this icon and Superman in a good space and John Williams and yeah. Richard and Richard Donner and Gene Hackman and Marlon Brando. It's, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Great choice, Jesse. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. I can't wait to hear yours. Hopefully, you're, you're probably mulling over a few things right now. I am, but you get Superman 1978 coming to you next week. Uh, and there you have it. Until then, I gotta get going. I gotta go. Um, oh God, what am I doing this week? <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm taking the boxed Earth. I'm taking it over to Carfax Abbey, uh, and then I'm gonna destroy it. That way, you know, we end the vampire curse forever. That probably will not end the conversations of vampires on the show. So when you do that, I'm going to keep a little mason jar of that dirt just off to myself on the side because I guarantee it's going to be showing up at least once more. Because you know we got to talk about Near Dark. Voyage of the Demeter. Would you ever want to throw a Twilight in here just for good fun? Why not? Yeah, why not? (laughs) A lot of fun. And to that, and to the legacy of vampires, we'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Bram Stoker's Dracula is property of Columbia Pictures, American Zoetrope, and Osiris Films. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. You have betrayed me. No, master. No, I I serve you. I serve only.